Howdy, and welcome to another episode of Adult Onset Horsemanship. I'm your host, Daniel Dolphin. Welcome back, everybody. Our guest today is Miss Becky Emilio. Becky is originally from California. She graduated from Cal Poly at Pomona. She has got a equine sciences degree and then a master's, which is in uh, equine business management, psychology, marketing, nutrition, pretty much a, a well-rounded, educated young lady. She has been training horses for 18 years. She now specializes in halter breaking colts and starting colts, 60-day type stuff. She has been a trainer's assistant under various trainers in the disciplines of Western pleasure, dressage, reining, and halter. She has finished up her learning under certified Monty Foreman instructors. She is the only ever Hall of Famer in the California Jim Connor Association to do so on a purebred Arabian. She has been an AQHA World Show qualifier three times in barrels and poles. She has won back-to-back -back ranch horse futurity titles in 2013 and 14, and currently she does specialize more in halter breaking babies and starting colts. She is located in central South Dakota, and she has promised after living in South Dakota to never complain about warm season weather again. Becky, how are you doing today? <laughs> I am fantastic. I am so incredibly excited to be here. Well, I'm glad to have you. We've been uh, dancing around getting you on here for quite a while I seem to be in a, in a season of guests I've been trying to get scheduled for like eight months so everybody I feel like I'm I'm late finally getting them on the podcast so I apologize this has been a long time of coming but I'm glad to finally have you on here well uh, you know I think when you when you first asked me a while back I was in a burnout phase and I would not have been a good guest if you'd have interviewed me then so it was probably best that it took a little time well, cool, cool. Hadn't you just won some sort of title or something at that point, too? I think I had just won the Reserve World Champion Senior Barrel Racing on my good mare. And I think we were just, we just been going hard all summer and it, we were going into fall. And then, you know, when winter kicks in, well, you really hit this season of rest and break and you, and it, it, you finally hit that burnout point. And mm -hmm. I think I was at that burnout point. Well, nothing wrong with that. We all need a vacation here and there, right? Yeah. We're, we're going to start off with our lightning round questions. And Becky, you may not know this, but these are four points. So have your A game strapped on here, okay? Hey, I've been studying for these like the SATs, okay? <laughs> I am ready to win this. Okay. Well, if you were a Jedi, what percent chance is there that you would use the Force inappropriately? I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't. I don't think I could do it. Integrity is what you do when nobody's watching, right? <laughs> there you go. Morning or evening? Morning. Definitely morning. Bay or sorrel? Ride red. All day long. Ride red. Hashtag ride red. <laughs> Does pineapple belong on pizza? Not on mine. You do You're... you, but it's not on mine. <laughs> Are you a cook at all? No. Oh, God, no. That's That was the prerequisite in um, my current relationship is, oh, I've been with JD for going on nine years, and I did not cook. And he jokes that he just had to feed me, and I was like a starving coyote pup. 
and all he had to do was feed me and I stuck around. So, <laughs> and I might start like browning hamburger in the evening, you know, for supper. And then he comes in and he just takes over. He's like, okay, get out of the way, go sit down. So fair. that that's pretty much how it rolls here. Fair enough. Fair enough. Do you have a pet peeve within mm. the horse world? The people that take pictures of their horses, it especially happens in one particular pedigree, but they'll say, look at my rank, whatever, mean whatever, and they got their kids sitting on its back in the backyard, you know, swing set there, you know, nothing. Horse isn't being asked to do anything. Horse isn't away from his buddies. You know, it's just a kid sitting on his back and somebody goes, look at my rank so-and-so. And it's like, well, none of them are ranked when you're not asking them to do anything. <laughs> it's when you ask them to do something. That's when you find out what you have. <laughs> <laughs> Might those tend to be blue roans and bay roans quite often as well? <laughs> um, and not not all the time. They're not always that color. But, yeah, that that's um, it happens in that pedigree a lot. I see those posts a lot, and it, it really frustrates me. I understand. I, I have a, uh, just as an aside, I have a real pet peeve with the people taking the picture of them standing up in the saddle. Uh, I've mm. been planning to do a YouTube video on it, uh, doing it on the first ride on the Colt. And here I am yeah. standing in the saddle yeah. and cracking a bullwhip. Now, 99.99% of people still don't belong on this horse. Doing this one little stunt proves absolutely nothing. Right. You know? So, right. Yeah. It, it, it changes, it changes your, your, um, I think relationship with the horse. If you can do that, but it doesn't necessarily prove anything. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, like it, it, like it does when I've done that with Colts, I don't do it with every single one by any means. In fact, JD kind of freaks out when I do it. It does change my relationship with that individual, but it doesn't, it's not going to make them any better for the next person that gets on them to ride them. Yep. That was kind of my I thought with the video, I was going to do it on three horses and give you like a five second clip. And one of the horses is the first ride. One of them is several months and one of them is bomb proof several years. And now tell me which one is which, right? Because all you saw was, right. was that. And sure. Yeah. Means that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Do you have a favorite beverage? Right now it's NW zero. Okay. I, I get along with it and it doesn't um, affect my allergies, at least right now. Now I'll probably build up some sort of a weird tolerance to it and I'll have to change to something else in a couple of months. But for the most part, it's water and AMW zero. Fair enough. If you had to pick between a horse being feral or spoiled, which would you pick? Anymore, I think I would take spoiled. I know for the longest time I wanted stuff not touched, but you get into South Dakota where not touch means they live out, they find their own food and water. I mean, it's the next closest thing to being wild. And um, depending on pedigree, some have a little bit more self-preservation than others. And um, it's real tough to get around some of those. So if you have one that's just spoiled and like, say he doesn't want to do something or he's, or he's pushy and and used to getting his way, I can get around those a little bit better with some consistency. Uh, doesn't mean they're going to go back to the owner and work really well for their owner ever again because the owner, you know, generally isn't going to 
have the same mannerisms, have the same tools that I have, but I think I'd rather take spoiled these days. Would you tell us something unexpected about you? I've been dying for this question. I didn't know if you were going to ask me or not, so I was ready. I competed in beauty pageants from the time I was 16 until I was 23 years old. I was the biggest tomboy, probably still am, and uh, I came home from school one day and I told my mom and dad I wanted to compete in this beauty pageant, and my mom just about fell over. Because, you know, I didn't wear makeup, I don't wear heels, I don't wear skirts, I don't wear nothing. I played softball all through high school. I was an FFA. I did all the stuff the boys did. You know, um, my dad took me camping, all the things. And um, when I came home and said I wanted to do a beauty pageant, she just couldn't believe it. So I, I, they had classes. I learned how to walk in the heels, interview, um, walk on stage, answer questions on stage, all, all the stuff. And... I ended up traveling all over the world through the pageant system. Like I've been to Bogota, Colombia and France and Nice and Mexico and Italy. It's been a great experience. Dang. Okay. I did not see that coming. So that was a good one. Yeah. Yeah. I figured you wouldn't. (laughs) If you could choose any superpower, what superpower would you choose? You know, um, Go back and fix my Facebook. <laughs> uh, inside joke for everybody. Um, a couple weeks ago, I lost my Facebook and it, I got hacked and I have not been able to get back into it. So I'd go back and make better decisions and try to fix it before it even got started. Go with that password they suggest that's asterisk star percent sign a all that the ridiculous stuff. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. Wow. I, I feel your pain on that. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. Thoughts or feelings? Oh, uh, thoughts. Okay. Thoughts, definitely thoughts. I was raised, I was raised, if you're going to cry, you go sit in the truck. So, um, so, you know, I, 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 I'm, I think I'm on the lower end of the Gen Xers. And, um, you know, not a whole lot of emotion. Um, I'm not saying there wasn't love in my, in my life and my family's life. I mean, I'm very, very close to my parents and family, but, um, but when you go out motorcycle riding with your dad and your big brother and you have an accident on your ATC, it was, if you're going to cry, go sit in the truck. (laughs) I, I think, uh, today's generation could certainly use some of that as well. Yeah. You bet. Are you decisive or indecisive? Decisive. Do something, even if it's wrong. <laughs> no uh, paralysis by analysis going on. No. Do you have a favorite piece of tack or horse-related tool? couple of things. I wear half chaps when I ride, and I started wearing them back in like, oh... 2001 so we're talking 25 years ago boyfriend i had at the time still very good friends with him he uh first generation mexican in california and he had a mexican saddle maker that was making different pieces of equipment for him and he had made these half chaps and they weren't your traditional english style half chaps they were they were very western looking very hispanic kind of a twist on them and they were called botas 
And if you look, if you, if you were to look them up, I think they're like a Portuguese descent, actually, the way that they, the way they attached. And I loved them. I, I love them for a legging. They came up right behind my knee and um, I've ridden in them ever since. And I've had a couple different pairs made. I, the pair that I currently have made, they, they attach with a buckle because depending on the season that I'm riding and I always have different layers of clothes on. And so I need to be able to expand them if I'm wearing, you know, three layers of pants and uh, yeah. So leather half chaps. I mean, I can't, I can't even ride bareback. I can't even like slip onto something bareback without my half chaps on. So that, that's the one piece of equipment I can't live without. And then the other piece that I, that I really enjoy is at the end of my reins, I've had a, like a, a, not a PVC, but a polycarbonate stick kind of sewn into them. So it's like a 24 inch stick on both sides of the reins. And I ride in rope reins. I, I struggle riding in leather reins anymore because my hands are kind of so gnarled up. I can't get a good hold on them. And so I've always liked, liked the hold that I get in like a, a, a set of rope, like high quality rope reins. And then at the end of it, there's this polycarbonate stick in it. And so I've got my whip built in. So I can spank, tap on the butt, tap on the shoulder, you know, whatever I need there. I mean, if somebody has to get over and under, you know, I've got it right there because you have those leather reins. And like when you have to get after somebody and you go to swing it and it's like, ooh, there goes the leather. I mean, it's, it, 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 you know, you lose some timing. So I really enjoy those sticks at the end of the reins and, and they give some weight and feel. And anytime I've been on something that really goes to bucking, those reins will usually stay on their sides, you know, instead of, you know, sometimes your, your reins go crazy when, when you're into something that's having a buck and fit those, those, the weight in those roping rain, those rope reins will, will stay on both sides of the horse and they're easy to grab and get a hold of when, when it hits the fan. So that's probably my pieces of equipment there. Sounds like a good idea. It really does. Almost a, a blend of old and new. You've got some, Yacht cord Makati, but then you've got like a Ramal yeah. built into it as well. So that's a that's a good idea. I like. Yeah, that. and it 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 takes some getting used to. You have to learn. Like it took me a good thirty days of riding in them back. You know, twenty five years ago when I first started riding in them. But I I I I hate when I go into the show pen and I have to switch to a leather rein. You know, I I like I have to practice now in a pair of leather reins to 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 get comfortable in them again. Mm-hmm. Do you have a favorite book or movie? One of my favorite movies would be um, Bull Durham. Just the the message in that, you know, how to be professional, what to say in front of the cameras, how to how to prepare yourself for the big league. I, I really like that, and then the whole sports turn on it, and then of course Kevin Costner. You know, how can you? <laughs> <laughs> I love Kevin Costner books. You know, if we're going with Westerns, anything by Elmer Kelton, mostly, mostly his stuff. And then if we're doing uh, uh, nonfiction, you know, anything by Ryan Holiday, I, I really enjoy. But yeah, that's, that sums it up. Sweet, salty, or spicy? Probably sweet and salty. We do a lot of... Uh, a lot of uh, element around here. You, you know, are you familiar with that? Uh, it's a new uh, electrolyte on the market. It's it's no sugar, no dodgy ingredients, and so we're always putting that in our water and drinking that. 
because otherwise we get terrible cramps if, if we're not, you know, getting some electrolytes in us. Yep. I, I switched a few years ago. Uh, I drink water all day long and down here in South Louisiana, you know, hot and humid. And I do apple cider vinegar and a little bit of salt. And I, I drink one of these big 32 ounce mm. uh, deals, at least one of those an hour. I drink a phenomenal amount of water, but oh, I yeah. sweat a, a ton too. So, oh, uh, but I that, bet. that keeps me from cramping up. That's been, been a, a like a, a new new thing unlocked for me is the apple cider vinegar and salt. So cool. Mm-hmm. What is your favorite dinosaur or deep sea creature? You know, I was gonna say Stegosaurus, but it has to be the Brontosaurus. Okay. Um reason is is I got a Colton training right now and he's a great big sucker and he he was meant to be a great big sucker. He he's he's by the biggest stud and probably the biggest mare on the place. And we joke that he's a brontosaurus and he's a two-year-old and he's just, I just posted a video, a riding video of him on my YouTube and, and, uh, he's, thank God he is so kind and so gentle. Um, but his, his barn name is Otis. And whenever we talk about him, the emoji is brontosaurus for him. (laughs) (laughs) And have you ever had a UFO encounter? No, no UFO encounters, but I have seen a lot of bright lights, you know, unexplainable flashes of light and not just when I've been hit in the head. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. A a lot of people don't realize, but like in the cartoons, that little yellow ring at Tweety Birds, that's absolutely for real. I've had a few uh, hellacious knocks to the head and, and yeah, the whole world turning yellow and spinning is that's a reality whoever did that cartoon yep. thing uh knew what they were talking about yep well becky you're gonna be our new high score for the game i'm seeing 952 points on the paper right here beside <laughs> me which is a phenomenal score definitely the highest <laughs> ever had. so as as you may know that entitles you either to a genuine compliment or an awkward silence your choice Oh, awkward silence. Awkward silence all the way. That was a good one, too. That was satisfying. I, I enjoyed that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, Becky, why don't you give us kind of the 30,000 foot view of what it is you do these days? Okay, so I'll probably give you a little bit of background of uh, where I came from. I, I'm originally from California because people always want to know, well, how did you make it to South Dakota? How did you get to South Dakota from California? And I was in California, and I was training some horses there, mostly the spoiled, you know, stuff that had just gotten away with, you know, pets, horses that had gotten away with things. And I had only started a handful of my own. And, and I ended up working on a halter horse ranch the last year that I was there. And all that that implies with the halter horse industry. <laughs> and um, I was starting to research and find myself my next barrel horse. And I was looking for something tough. Well, where do you go when you look for something tough? You go you look for South, look in South Dakota. And they had the designer pedigrees there for barrel horses. And I had gotten to visiting with this one particular ranch out in Wall, South Dakota, which is near rapid city which which is kind of you know when you say rapid city people usually know what you mean in south dakota and and uh, i got to visit with this one ranch and they just offered me a job 
And I just up and left California. I, I, I had some money saved up because I was go I qualified for the world show in 2011. I had money saved up. I was, and I used all that money to move instead. And I made it out to, I mean, I didn't, I didn't like come and interview in person. I didn't fly and visit the ranch. I didn't come and see if it was something that I want to do. I just moved. And this was back when we were barely starting to use GPS and we were still printing out the six pages of MapQuest and traveling <laughs> like pirates. And nobody told me that when you go across the state of Wyoming, that you better fill up with fuel at every single gas station you come across because the next shop for a fuel station is not for a long time. If you even find one that actually has like a card machine, because they still have the old fashioned, you got to walk inside, get somebody to turn the pump on you. And those suckers aren't open 24 hours a day like they are in California. So I just up and moved. And then I worked in wall at this particular ranch and they were, um, they bred uh, sun frost horses. So I got, a pretty good education right away on um, some pretty ranchy stuff the first two years I was there. And, you know, I brought all my horses with me. We all acclimated. In 2013, the Atlas storm came through and it, and not a whole lot of people in this country are familiar with it. Um, the Atlas storm dropped a whole bunch of storm in a matter of, uh, it was about 36 hours, 24, 36 hours on October 3rd to October 4th. And when all the animals are still out in the, the summer pastures, there's no protection. They don't have their hair coats on yet. So this it, was snow and ice. So, this was snow and ice okay. started out as freezing rain and then snow and ice. And, this particular ranch that I was working for, we lost 48 head of horses. Yeah, that's a big deal. Five of them were horses that were right up in the corrals that had protection. And so when you realize that, because we're all taught in school, all of us that have taken the nutrition courses say, if you keep hay in front of a horse, it's going to stay warm and it'll be fine. You don't have to put a blanket on it. But in this case, it froze them. Then the blizzard, the high winds pushed them and then they travel with the blizzard. So when you go out to the pasture, there's stuff that's stuck in the fences. It's, you know, buried under snow, snow drifts. And then right up in the corrals, we had horses die right up in the corrals that had plenty of protection. And so with this loss, it was a tremendous loss. Um, I mean, I had ridden so many horses for this ranch that were replacement fillies. Um, we had stuff picked out. There was 13 head picked out that I was going to ride that spring. Um, coming twos. Um, we had client horses that we lost. And, you know, at that point, it's kind of just not fun anymore to do it. You know, how do you recover from that? So I went to work for another ranch in New Underwood, which is just 60 miles north of, of that wall area. And uh, went to work for them. And there I worked for another year and a half and starting colts for them. And that's where, boy, I did a lot of horses at that place. I mean, we just cranked them out. And I went to work for a couple um, with kids. And the, the man was six foot four, 270 pounds. And I didn't realize that that made a difference at the time. And I met my boyfriend that I have now. 
when I was working there because he'd come to me, um, wanting me to start cold. He'd like message me on Facebook, like, Hey, do you, can you take horses? And, and I didn't schedule my own horses at the time. And, uh, I said, you know, you'll have to go through my boss and, you know, work with them on, on scheduling and whatnot. And, and, uh, got to meet him in person. He brought some horses to me. He invited me out to his ranch, which is where I live now, and got to look at his horses and got to kind of pick what I wanted to ride because there was just so many. It was like, have your choice. What do you want? That's what that one is. That's what that one is. That you know, you go out into the pasture, you drive out and pick up out to the far, you know, far 160 acres, and then and, and you know, you just have your choice of any blue roan stud colt you want. So I was I was riding for a lot of outside people at the time. And when I met his dad, his dad is, his dad's now uh, 76, 77 years old. And, and his dad goes, how many horses are you riding at now? And I said, um, I'm, I'm riding 10 head a day. And, and it's a big deal here. Numbers are a big deal. How many you ride? You know, it's, it, it it's, it's like a badge of honor how many horses you're riding. Mm-hmm. And, and obviously the level of efficiency and how much money you're making is tied into how many you're riding. Right. And he looks at me and he goes, you know, I work. And I'm like, well, I don't have to do the chores. They're doing the chores, but I'm, I'm, I'm riding these Colts. And, and he goes, you know what he goes what are you like 115 pounds 110 pounds he goes that's too much for you and he goes you know you're little right and i and i didn't know i didn't know i was little until he said it to me right because i was raised by parents that never told me i was little you know my dad always told me i could do whatever the hell i wanted right you know i mean there was never any you can't do that because only boys can do that or, or whatever right it was they never told me I was little, so I didn't know. So that's why it's so important when I say the boss I had was 6'4", 270 pounds, because there was things that he was asking me to do with these horses that just I couldn't do. And they hired me on because I had had such success starting colts for this other ranch, and then he wanted to change how I was how I was doing it working for him and started working on his horses now granted i could tell you it was a fabulous experience i learned i learned how to do it so many different ways i mean i did the i did the him having me on a line and i've done it where he just get, it's just a halter and lead rope and you're riding bareback i've done the uh you know ponied up to another horse and i've done all of those different techniques that we see and I still come back to my original technique where I do groundwork for a long, long time. And then when I feel like that horse is really accepting of what I'm doing to it, then I get on it. But all that being said, um, I ended up quitting working there after about a year and a half. And I moved in with JD here in Blunt, South Dakota, because people always want to know how the heck did you end up in Blunt? And I moved back here with him and his dad and him said, you do whatever you want. If you want to start our horses for us, you can start our horses for us. You can take outside horses. We don't care. You know, you don't have to do it if you don't want to. You don't need to do 10 head a day anymore if you don't want to. And that was when I was 35, 34, 35. And um, doing 10 head a day anymore, let's just say. I, I started dropping off to eight head a day. And, you know, and then every year it's kind of gradually slowed down every year. But 
primarily what I do is start Colts. For a long time there, I was working on stuff that wasn't even halter broke. We had my pen situation set up so you could back the trailer in, unload the horse off the trailer into the corral, and then I could run it down the aisleway from the corral into the round pen and work in the round pen with it until I could get it halter broke. And JD has been bringing me stuff like that for years. And now we've kind of changed. We've we we've gotten rid of that stuff. We're not doing that stuff anymore. Um, it's they've got to be halter broke, man. Preferably have their feet handled too, if if they could. And uh, JD has gotten really strict, and and there's you because know, you still have people that want you to start a three and four year old, and uh, and and JD knows what his three and four year olds look like, and uh, they're pretty big and they're really strong. And I've always been hurt by a three or four year old. And, you know, you'll get the private message on Facebook that says, can you please, you know, start my horse? We think he's wonderful. You know, this, that, and the other thing. This is how he's bred. He's so gentle. He's so this and that. And JD goes, you know what? If they'd have thought anything of that horse, they'd have had it started at two. If they'd, and, and it's a tough, tough, tight rope to walk. I get a lot of hate on YouTube occasionally on my videos of on starting two-year-olds. But I think it's from people that aren't in the trenches. When you're in the trenches and you're working on these horses every single day and you see how strong and how tough they get exponentially every year of age, you know, there's nothing wrong with starting them as a two-year-old. I'm five foot three. I'm 115 pounds. I'm not working anything into the ground. I might joke about it. I might joke that, yeah, we're going to go work this one into the ground today. And it's all tongue in cheek. And every once in a while, some people can't handle me even saying that. But they just, you know, they get offended so easy and, and they think I'm really hurting these horses. But now, how I run my business is I try really, really hard to take long yearlings and get them used to the work ethic. You come out of your corral, you stand tied, you get your feet done, you get brushed, you get rinsed off, you go to the round pen, you walk over logs, you learn how to load in the trailer, and then they come back as a two-year-old, and then we go to work. And nobody gets work. No, There's no 30-day BS. There's none of that anymore. It's when this horse is ready for me to ride, I ride it. When it's ready to be done, when it starts to get tired and it's in a growth spurt and in a funky place. Because, you know, there's there's a point in two-year-olds where they they, they, they get tired and they, they their body changes. And all of a sudden, they hit funky growth spurts. They can't do the stuff that you've been working on. And you can tell that they're ready to rest and be turned out again or go home. And so when I get to that point, which is roughly... 20 or 30 rides. Some of them can make it to 35 rides, depending on what we're doing, depending on how big and mature they are. We go as far as we can and then they get kicked out and I start back on them again in the spring. If, if an owner brings them back to me, if, if, if that's the case, oftentimes we get a good video of them. We take some good pictures and they sell before I even get them back again. And so oftentimes what I do is I'm marketing horses for clients usually cannot keep anything long enough to, I, I say this in air quotes, to finish anything. I give it a bunch of good experiences. I put a basic handle on it to make it usable for somebody else to get along with. 
And, and then oftentimes if we've got the picture and video of it and somebody in the early spring calls and says, Hey, this is what I'm looking for. We've got it. Here's the video of it from last fall or, or last summer. Mm-hmm. Well, let me just say, I couldn't agree more with the stuff that you're saying. Uh, as you said, in the trenches, people have, most people have absolutely no appreciation in the difference of starting a two-year-old or a three-year-old or a four-year-old, and it's significant. Their mind is a lot more malleable when they're a two-year-old. If if they are going to be tough, the degree to which they're going to be tough isn't nearly there because they're not as big and strong. <clears throat> and for those of us that are going to start a few thousand head in our lifetimes, that extra beat up that you get from the three-year-old adds up over time, doesn't it? And uh, I, I totally understand yep. what you're saying. I, I kind of hate they have this growth chart that floats around. Have you seen this with the uh, red lines yes. on the skeleton of what parts mature? Yeah. Because we don't have seven-year-olds playing soccer and baseball or anything like that. And high school kids who aren't fully physically mature don't play football or anything like that, right? We wait until humans are fully physically mature before we allow them to do any sort of activity. That's the way we handle our own species. And so, of course, horses need to be handled exactly the same way. It just drives me crazy. And also, you know, I've I've been at this for a long, long time. I've done this long enough where some of the horses I started as two-year-olds are now well into their 20s, some of them nearing 30. And there's still plenty of them that are still going. It's, It's nowhere near the death sentence that people tend to predict and of the things that skeletal growth chart that we see and for instance the phrase a lot of people don't know when they talk about x-ray and a two-year-old's knees to see if they're open what they're looking for in the x-ray is the growth plates on the ends of the long bones and when those growth plates finish and fuse and solidify those are the things that we're waiting to skeletally mature in the horse until they're six those are not the places that we tend to have lameness problems in horses. We tend to have all those problems Absolutely. In, in the joints, which are not going to change over time. You know, uh, there's also a micro fracture process where if you take a horse that's young and you work it, you get these little microscopic fractures in the bone, which recalcify and heal. And it winds up making that bone more dense and stronger over time. Whenever we had here, in the U.S., there are people outside of the U.S. listening to this. In 2007, the horse slaughter ban took place. And for whatever reason in, in my business, that transitioned me. I, I started getting in a ton of 8-year-olds, 10-year-olds, and 12-year-olds to break. Oh, and, God, I'm so sorry. Well, it, it wasn't that bad on me. I mean, at that point, I was old enough that I was going to take my time and, and I wasn't going to get myself busted up or anything. But I had more soundness problems out of those older horses getting started than I have ever had out of young ones. So, you know, that that's just a big fallacy, I think, about starting these young horses. And just like you're saying, you have to be protective of You're not out there trying to drag bulls into trailers on a colt with 30 days right. that's a two-year-old or something stupid like that I don't, I don't think you know if someone is doing that sort of stuff then yeah they somebody needs to drag them off their horse and, and introduce them to the end of a bridle rein or something like that but and i too have found often that when you do start to ride a two-year-old just like you said a month into that it's like they hit a growth spurt. All of a sudden, their withers shoot up a couple of inches. They get a little gangly and lanky. It, it just 
it kicks that off for whatever reason. And it isn't uncommon that you'll have one that is going along pretty nicely. And all of a sudden they just get goofy and awkward and they don't know where their legs are anymore. <laughs> I, I, I can remember. Yeah. I, yeah. I was starting a big Appaloosa gelding for some friends of mine and, and he was like a 15 to two year old and all legs. Uh, he was like riding a spider. You just had legs in your vision everywhere underneath you when you were riding. <laughs> and this was the most uncoordinated thing. He went down on me. I thought he was going to squash me, just loping him, just tripped and went down. And I was kind of like, all right, I, we need to wait a little more on him because he's going to, I don't want to die on this one. You know what I mean? Just because he tripped out there loping around. But anyway, nice. so I, I like what you're saying and I like your, your point of view there. Well, and, and, you know, and I give a lot of time off. I give them, I'm not a, I, I when I first started doing this, I was riding some really tough, tough horses. And it was a ride em, it was it was kind of a ride em hard situation. You know, you know, you keep drilling, drilling, drill. And then I realized nobody is gonna ride their horse like this. No customer when they get their horse back is gonna ride their horse like this. I'm mostly starting horses for breeders that are gonna sell them anyway. You know, and oftentimes the breeders don't even get on them. The breeders, I, I, I would make a video for them and we'd take pictures and the breeders would sell them to somebody who was going to use them anyway. And then it was some backyard horse people that they wanted something just to go out and ride in the spring and summer. And all these people had regular nine to five jobs and nobody is going to ride their horses like this. So doesn't it make sense that I get the colt adjusted to a program, a curriculum where he gets ridden every other day, every couple of days. And part of that is also selecting a good individual to begin with that can handle a couple of days off and not, you know, be bronchy when you pull a cinch into him on, you know, when there's, when he's had a couple of days off. Okay. So just like us, you know, there's a reason why they tell you to go arm day one day, leg day the next day, arm day, you know, you, you break up your workouts. I think they get body sore. And when they get body sore, they get really crabby. They get crabbier and more uncooperative when they get body sore. So I'd rather err on the side of giving them a day or two off. And if I can't give that horse a day or two off without him being kind of miserable the next time around when I go get on it, then maybe that's not the right horse for that owner. And I need to give that owner that kind of feedback that, Hey, this sucker needs road all the time, or he can't handle any time off that that's part of the feedback loop that I'm looking for because lots of people that I ride for, they're not professional ranchers or farmers. They're not home all the time. There's a horse that I'm riding right now for a couple, um, She's a traveling vet. And so she's out of town for part of the month. And then the other part of the month, she's there and she's riding. And so this horse has to be able to be saddled up and go after he's had some time sitting, you know, sitting in the, in the corral. We, we have kind of the Yellowstone thing going on around the country right now. And I'm sure y'all are feeling yes. that as well. And yep. now all of a sudden the market for a quote unquote ranch horse is just, you know, all you have to do is attach that to him and he's worth a minimum of five grand and yep. that sort of stuff. Oh, you, you better, you better crank that price up quite a bit, <laughs> brother. Cause that's a lot more than that. The, the, the point is a lot of these ranch 
the true ranch bloodlines. I'm picking on Little Peppy all the time down here in in Texas, but those were the kind of horses that a were tough enough to make a 25 mile circle and last 12 hour days and all that stuff. But yeah. B, yeah needed that you had to keep them about half dead or they were going to try to kill you the next day and if you kicked them out for six mm -hmm. weeks and you got them back up that first monday tuesday yep. wednesday was about to be pretty rough on on the cowboy and so those horses are super tough which is a fantastic yep. trait when it's working for you but it's not such a phenomenal trait when it's working against you <laughs> and so yeah um, yeah yeah, I think yeah. most people want that eighth and, generation, not that second generation, you know. Right. And and since we're gonna pick on we're gonna pick on some pedigrees here for a second. So the, the pedigree re raise here on Lowing Ranch is uh Hancock Blue Valentine horses. And um I get along with them. They are a tough horse to get along with, and once you figure it out, life gets real easy. One thing that I have learned from riding for so many breeders in the state. I have ridden for so many breeders in this state. I've had so many wonderful opportunities to ride all sorts of different. So whether it's Metallicat, Peppy Sand Badger, the Sunfrost, um, you know, straight speed stuff, you know, streak and six stuff. And then, you know, into, um, you know, Catalina boys, that, that kind of thing. What I have learned is the the folks that have been in business and breeding horses for a long long time you know they really start to breed horses that are just like them because that that's what they're looking for right that's the kind of person they are that's the kind of rancher they are that's what they need that's what's always worked for them that's the kind of horse that works for them i i had figured that out that so i got to where I, there's only a couple of breeders that i'll still ride for anymore if i'm going to take an outside horse from clients and one thing JD told me right away is he said, you have got to be nice to them. You have got to make friends with them. And I tell you what, his dad is the same way. You know, you've got to make friends and gain his dad's respect because this is a very patriarchal state. They're not just going to let some little girl from California come in and ride their horses for them. You know, I had to work really, really hard to gain the respect of the people in the state and gain the respect of my father-in-law. And um, when I started working on his horses and JD started working on with me because he was helping me halter break, he'd, he'd kind of get a light, we call it light touch halter breaking. <laughs> I say that tongue in cheek. <laughs> like he could put him in a chute and he could get a halter on him and we'd have a lead rope hanging from him. And, you know, and then he could drag him behind a four wheeler. But then when I'd start walking him over to a round pen, they're like, uh uh, we know what that round pen's about now. But, uh, we started figuring out who wanted to get along and who didn't want to get along. And we started culling quite a bit of horses. There was one horse specifically that I can remember, two-year-old stud, you know, just hadn't been gelded yet. You know, he just was a stud that hadn't been gelded yet. It wasn't like he was a prospect. But I was brushing on him. He was getting to the point where I could brush on him. And he went to trying to kick at me, cow kick at me. And I said to JD, I go, this one's wanting to kick at me. And JD kind of, he's kind of frustrated because he's already brought this one to me. That means he's going to have to go out and get another one for me to ride. And he goes, well, can you get around this one or not? And up until this point, I've been getting around a lot of horses. And I go, do you want to raise a horse that you have to get around or one that wants to get along? 
And it changed our perspective on what we were raising, what I was riding, what we were trying to market, what we were trying to sell. And, you know, again, made another big coaling of horses. And we realized that, you know, those, those cowboys and cowgirls that can ride those horses, they're becoming extinct. And what even I'm sure what you like to ride 15 years ago and what I like to ride 15 years ago is a very different horse than what I like to ride now. <laughs> and, and, um, I mean, I still, it's still cool every once in a while, but for the most part, I'm 44 years old and I kind of like something that walks off real slow at first. <laughs> and, and by the, and by the end of the ride, it can kind of step up a little bit faster. <laughs> so so those those riders those cowboys and cowboys those tough horsemen i think they're becoming extinct and that with that being said as breeders we start we need to start making user more user-friendly horses that want to get along a little bit better now granted jd still raises some horses that are a little bit tougher they're gonna be heavy work ethic you know strong go all day kind of horses but we don't offer them to just anybody you know, we kind of keep those guys back, you know, off away. And, and when somebody calls us and tells us what they're looking for, we try to make a match because you know, as well as I do, if we sent a horse to somebody that it didn't get along, it doesn't give anybody a good name. It's bad for the horse. It's bad for us. It's bad for the person. And, you know, nobody's going to recommend us. Nobody's going to say, Hey, come back. So all that being said, you know, I know we're, we're breeding Hancock Blue Valentines, but it's a little bit different Hancock Blue Valentine than the days of lore when all they did was buck. Mm -hmm. uh, I think you're bringing up a really good point that I would like to get into if you're comfortable with it. And that is sort of the culling process. And I don't think this is the sort of thing a lot of people really have the stomach to talk about anymore but it is an important aspect we, we sort of have a, a pretty large segment of the population that would believe that nothing should ever be called everything is wonderful it just needs the right person or the right handling and all of that stuff and i mean there's a degree of that but but just as you said do you want a horse that you have to walk around or a horse that wants to get along and that process requires culling. I think what you're describing is y'all want to be the ones to cull the horses, not the customers. Yes. Because if the customer yeah. winds up culling it, then that, that comes back on you. But if y'all cull it on right, your end, right. then, um, and that's what good breeders are supposed to do. And we have this in all facets of our society. It happens with dogs. Anytime a movie comes out with a new breed, of cool dog, then they start getting mass produced. And 15 years later, what you're going to have that you're going to buy from breeders is going to be a disaster because amateurs mm -hmm. took over the breed and the professionals got to, who were who were culling and had high standards and and yeah. understood what they were dealing with that stuff all gets gets pushed out and i would say that i've at least in the area that i'm in over my career i, I think horses are way easier to get along with now than what they were before I, I think that the genetics yeah. like particularly yeah. my background is in cutting and 
when I was starting out, we were still having lots of own sons and daughters, a smart little Lena, and there were plenty of little peppy horses left out there. And those things were bronchy. They were, they just, they were not horses just anybody needed to fool with. And with uh, sort of the introduction of the highbrow cats and, and those sorts of horses, the mind on them has gotten way more tamed down. They're way more easy to get along mm-hmm. with. You kind of always had in, in the 90s, there was like a third of your string that might make a cut in horse futurity, might go to the NFR and the saddle bronc. We're not really sure yet, you know, <laughs> and that doesn't really happen anymore. So uh, I, I'm glad and, that you know, you... and speaking of, I, I was going to say, speaking of the might go to the bronc match, might go to futurity, you know, I was just saying this the other day. It also matters who you take that horse to to get it started. It matters, and people don't realize it. They think that you just take the horse to the guy that can ride a buck, and that is not the case. You know, some of the some of the worst reputation you could get, and I hate to pick on bull riders, but right after I met JD, he had sold two colts to some folks locally here and they sent those two horses to a bull rider to start them. And guess what happened? You know, they're Mm -hmm. the rankest son of a guns. And, and, and it's also, I hate to sound like this, but it's also the man thing, the, the aggressive, the, the, we're going to ride it out, you know, rather than let's help try to try to teach this horse and educate this horse. We're just going to ride it out because I think as a general rule, it's safe to say men don't have as much self-preservation as a woman does. Now, I used to never have any self-preservation either. So I'm not I'm not picking on guys. We'll get into all my injuries shortly. But um, I have a little bit more now than I used to. We'll get into that. I know you're laughing at me. But it, it does matter who you send your horse to. It If you're wanting to get your colt started, you don't send it to the guy that says, hey, you know what, if you can put a transmission in my pickup, I'll start your horse for you. Or let's trade out this couch and love seat set. And if you start my horse for me, you know what, that doesn't work. You got to go to the professional that has ridden a lot of them and put a lot of them out there and had lots of experience. And that's another problem that I see people running into. Yeah. And and if he's 100 or 200 more a month, there's probably a reason right? Yeah. You, you get what you yep. you pay for. Yep. I, I definitely, yeah. I've, I've had similar experiences with the rodeo guys. They are, they're generally looking for the buck. Um, yes. and, and that's, you know, you, you're going to train him one of two ways and, and, uh, that's probably not the direction you want to go. <laughs> so, and you're, and you know, your idea of a buck is different than my idea of a buck. You know, it's, it's that old joke on Facebook, the man, like your horse didn't buck, you crow hopped. Mm-hmm. You know, and I've had friends send me videos of their horses bucking. I say that in air quotes, you know, like that wasn't a buck, you know, and and it's just different. When I tell you that horse doesn't buck too bad and the guy that's a saddle bronc rider in the Badlands circuit, you know, saddle bronc riding, and he says that horse doesn't buck too bad. It is so, so very different. And we all have to kind of take that stuff and and try to pull it apart and ask more questions and figure out what they mean. Because I've got one colt in right now 
that when he gets to playing with my dogs, I always ride out with my dogs and my dogs are always doing something and he gets excited by the dogs and he'll let out one buck. That's it. That's all he does. And he quits. Now it probably could unseat somebody else. Cause it's big. It's big. He's a big horse. It's big, but, but I'm not going to tell you he doesn't buck. You know, I'm not going to tell you he doesn't. I'm not going to tell you he's safe for everybody just yet because he still can't handle his emotions when the dogs get to playing and screwing around. Very true. Very true. Before we move off, I want, I did want to get into your bell racing stuff, but I thought I'm having a senior moment. My, my very good thought is fleeting <laughs> from me here trying to grasp it. It's like a wisp of smoke out there. Uh, it was about the bloodlines, the, Okay, so the, the Hancock and the Driftwood and, and some of those bloodlines, I haven't fooled with a ton of them. Uh, we're just not in the area mm-hmm. where where they're from. Sure, sure. From my perspective of them, it, it seems like they are horses that are, if I were going to get scientific about it, I would say they're probably more prone to freeze than a lot of other horses are. So, Freeze can be hard to recognize. They could be in a bad spot, but they're not moving right now, and people don't see that. And then next thing you know, they come out of freeze and boom, and we get that, oh, he just blew up out of nowhere. Absolutely. Do you find that to be true with them? So they're just a little harder to be, a little more stoic, but it's it's Um, still there. Yeah, 100%. They don't have a big flight at all. There is no flight. There is no flight. They stand their ground on everything. And the first thing I do in my groundwork when I go in is I want to make sure who they are. Like, are you, are you one that's going to freeze, flee, fight? What are you going to do? And I go in and, and most of the time they will, they'll, they'll spin and aim at me. You know what I mean? They're, they're going to aim for me before they run away from me. And um, I usually do it kind of with a bag on a stick. Let's see. Let's see how bad I can piss you off and what it takes to piss you off. Because that's my evaluation of disposition. Because I go in, I go in really, really hard. And most people are scared to go in hard because they don't want to take the horse past threshold because they don't know how to downregulate it. And this is where we get more scientific is the downregulating part. I'm really big on the downregulating. And um, if you don't know how to downregulate, it is scary going in and putting pressure on them. And I go in and I go hard with the pressure. We believe here that, you know, a quiet person makes a spooky horse and a spooky person makes a quiet horse. So I'm always doing crazy stuff. I've always got four dogs with me, two, two retrievers and two cattle type dogs. There's action going on all the time. They're flushing birds. They're chasing stuff. They're on the horse's heels while I'm trying to pick out feet for God's sake. You know, everything's going on all the time. And then, like I said, I go in really hard, put a lot of pressure on them and see who they are. And if they're going to turn around and fight me and want to kick my head off, I go, okay, I know all I have to do is be your best friend. And because they're raised out, I mean, we're talking... Out of the, out of the, corral, the little corral situation, they're not stall babies. They've never been a stall baby in their life. Even my big corrals that they stay in are like 100 by 80 pens, okay? 
But most of the time, these suckers are out on 160 acres or so before they're brought into me to be started. And so when I get them in that confined area, they don't want to move. They, they just, they don't have any forward motion. They have no ambition and you can't get forward out of them. When I find that it's, it's encouraging, everything is encouraging movement. Sometimes it's walking in hand to get them to start figuring it out. I find if I start them at 18 months old and they start to kind of learn the, 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 the round pen and how to balance themselves on the rail and the round pen, it comes a lot easier to them than if they're two, three, or four. But sometimes it really helps a lot if I can pony them off one of my big geldings and take them out, then they learn some forward motion that way. And that's when the fight comes, you know, is if, if you push too hard and they've locked up on you and you can't get that forward motion. That being said, on my first rides, JD is always there on my first ride. And he's on the ground. He's my ground man. And he doesn't ride a lot himself. Once or twice a year is max for him. He's a groundwork guy. He's a halter brake guy. And then the rest of the time, he's fixing stuff on the ranch, everything that all of us have broke. Most of the time, he's coming behind me fixing stuff that I've broken. And so he's there for the first ride, and he's watching that horse, and he's making sure that I've checked all my boxes. I'll tell him, hey, this one's ready for a first ride. And he comes, and he's my second set of eyes, and he's kind of doing the lie detector test, trying to figure out if this horse really is ready or if it's just going to be a meathead. And that's his word for it. He's like, man, what, what's this meathead going to do? And he'll help the horse on the ground with me up there for the most part. Like we're not, he didn't have me on a line or anything, but he's there. He, he, he has the he can give the you position some forward. Figure. Yeah. He can give yeah, you some forward it, without you having to yep. overdo things. And, yeah. Yep. Yep. And so second ride, Depending on who the horse is, if I have a really good emergency stop on that horse, and I, I, I want to get into my emergency stop too before we're done today. If I've got a good emergency stop on that horse, I usually ride out on the second ride. And I've kind of got the ability free reign to go about two miles every direction from where my round pen, where my arena sit on the ranch. And I prefer to go out across the road into our hay field because it's flat. I don't have to worry about you know, prairie dog holes and anything like that. So if something does run off with me, I can get it stopped and not really worry about the horse trip and stumbling and falling with me, you know, for the most part. And I can, you know, get an emergency stop done into them. And after a certain point, they don't, they, they don't have enough run in them to go that far anyway. But if you can get them riding out and they figure out that forward motion, you are home free with those suckers. You are so home free. And I find that with actually, I mean, not just Hancock Blue Valentine horses, but I really find that across the board with most of the stuff that's raised in this state, unless it's a stall baby. If it's a stall baby, then I've got to kind of coddle it a little bit in the round pen in the arena before I take it outside. I got to make sure we got a little bit more handle on it before I just go outside. But these horses that are raised out, they're more comfortable out and they're safer out than they are in the round pen in the arena. I absolutely agree with you. And I wrote a couple of things I want to come back to, but just while you're on that, that's always a red flag to me when I have a customer that's having some trouble with a horse or something. And you find out they they've started riding them and they've done 30 rides all in the round pen. And I'm like, Oh, Okay. Yeah. So, so you need to leave the round pit. That's kind of what you're, <laughs> you've been in there too long and yeah, I know what's going on with you now. 
So you may stay in there for a few rides, but you, you need to get out into some bigger places. And especially with some of those colder natured horses, they need the room to move. Just like you said, I, I couldn't mm-hmm. agree with you more. One of the things I love that you said there was sort of one of what's becoming one of my pet peeves. And I'm going to sound a little bit old school here and, and I'm okay with that because I think, I think there's sort of a pendulum shift going on. We have, this world of the new age stuff coming in and everybody wants some connection and they want this emotional relationship with your horse and, and all of this stuff. And this word threshold has gotten introduced into the conversation. And another word is consent. I don't know if you've come across any of the, the my horse has to have yeah. give me their consent yeah. people, but I, I'm just like you. I've ridden a lot of horses that that were legit dangerous and haven't been handled and stuff. And I do exactly the same thing you're talking about. I'm going to walk in that round pin and I'm going to poke that sucker and I'm going to purposefully, I want to know where threshold is. Some of them, maybe I have to poke pretty damn hard to approach it. And some of them, maybe it's right there. I can remember a horse. So Pasafina, I wasn't even in the round pin. I'm just tossing my saddle up onto the rail. Oh, he jumped out the other side. I mean, oh, God. Like, okay, threshold's pretty close with that one, right? Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. Now we get to go rope him in the big pasture. But <laughs> but you better know where a threshold is. And 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 if you know people like Becky and I that do this a lot, our lives are on the line here too. I don't want to be in a wheelchair yeah. or anything like that. And and so if it's going to get bad with a horse that I have a reasonable chance of it getting bad with, I want to know how bad it's going to get before my butt's up there and I'm on you the bet. line for it. And and yeah. so anytime I hear this talk about the threshold and never cross it and all uh, that immediately puts that person in a naive category for me. And I'm, I'm thinking you're green and you haven't legitimately dealt with horses that are, that are going to hurt you yet. Your self-preservation better kick in at some point, or you're not going to still be doing this in a few years. You're going to be, squashed and out the door or you better stay within one of those little like the reining horses i mean you could you could do the first ride standing up in the saddle on them mm-hmm. and, and you know they're they're born broke so there's not really a challenge with most of those horses but that wasn't true 30 years ago either some of those horses could be right pretty right tough. so well why don't yeah. i want and, I and consent some... is just is i was gonna say isn't consent just anthropomorphizing a little bit for, for sure. Uh, my, my response to them is always because the big boss mare in the herd always gets consent before mush, push, pushing them around and all that stuff too, right? That That's exactly what horses are used to mm-hmm. is giving consent. And when I have a wildfire coming and I got to get all my horses out of here in the next hour or they're going to die, I want to be sitting at the back of the trailer waiting on their consent before they're going to load for me today. We decide that it's Tuesday and it's right. not a good day to load. So, I mean, it's, it's a... It's an absurd right. notion. It it truly is. I understand the the heart behind it, but there's got to be reality mixed in with all of that. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a there's a look at them and see how they're responding to what you're doing, and see if they're okay. If, and and the way that they tell you they're okay, what do they do? They lick and chew. They cock a leg. They lower their neck and head. Right. Those are like the three big ones that they do when they go. I'm okay with this. You know, but you have to push them, push them until they're not okay. And then you go, okay, that's where you're not okay anymore. And let's try to work through that spot where you're not okay. And and like like you said, it's different for all of them. And when I put, when I go in hard right away and I find out who they are, 
I know right away what category to place them in. This one is going to work for anybody. You know, this one I'm going to be able to sell to somebody 1,500 miles away, and I know that horse is going to work when it unloads off the trailer in California. Mm-hmm. This one, we better find somebody who's going to take some time, you know, is a little bit more of a hand, who knows a little bit more what they're doing. That's the one we have, you know, we have to place that horse in that home. Not saying the horse doesn't lack quality or shouldn't, you know, continue to move through the program, but he's just going to take a little bit extra work. You know, he's going to take a little bit more time, a little more patience, and maybe somebody, and I'm not against this either, Daniel. I'm not against saying, you know what, it takes a better horseman than me to work with that one. Or even this, I didn't mention this at the beginning. I work on a lot of studs. Mm-hmm. And it just started out that people started bringing me studs because they knew I was good with a stud. Two-year-old studs don't usually act like studs. You know, they, they act like little baby geldings. They don't know who they are yet. And um, I did a really good job with them, and I gave people phenomenal feedback on their horse. I get, you know, do I want to ride more just like this one? You betcha or no, I don't want to ride any more like this one. Or I think this one's pretty cool, whatever. So, so I'm, I'm riding a lot of studs and there's a point there with studs that I know I don't have enough testosterone to handle this one anymore. I've gone as far as I can go with it and he is ready for a man to handle him or he's ready for somebody else to handle him. And I'm not opposed to it. And maybe that sounds like I'm giving up the whole woman, you know, the whole woman species, the female species, but, but they do get big and strong and you cannot control hormones. There's a point there where you can't, you can correct it and you can try to stay ahead of it and you can keep it worked down and keep it conditioned, you know, keep it exercise and keep it busy. And, but there's a point there where you, you know, when we're loading studs on the trailer to go out the pasture, I'm not involved in that. That's something JD and his dad do. And they put those boys on the trailer and, you know, it's squealing and squalling and banging. And because those boys know it's springtime, the sun, the light has changed. They know where they're going. They're not idiots. And I don't get involved in that. We go out to take pictures of a, of a mature stud and I make JD go out. Like he doesn't do anything. He's just there for testosterone support, (laughs) (laughs) you know, (laughs) And, and because you know, I'm not strong enough. I mean, I do know my limitations. I'm not strong enough. And and for as much training as these guys have had, sometimes a man, I think sometimes a man has to step in and go, and correct them. And and I don't always have that in me. And I don't know that I'm, you know, it, it was, it, this goes back to what I said in the beginning that my boss that I had, I, that I had switched jobs to, he was 6'4", 270 pounds. And I was completely oblivious that his wingspan was twice my wingspan. And when he approached a horse, he smelled different than me. And I think women don't realize that, that even when we approach a horse, we smell different than a man does. And we can use that for or against our advantage. You know, it it just depends on the situation. And, um, And the whole wingspan thing, when I go to send something out on the line, you know, even though I can do all the body language, it might not be the same body language as what that man just did, or that tall person, mm-hmm. you know, that has the length yeah, and, and the an height intimidation. and everything There's an intimidation factor sure. there that you just are going to have a little more trouble with. Sure. And there's, I, and there's things that, oh, go ahead, go ahead. I, I was just going to say, I mean, that, 
that does work the other way. Like one of the biggest lessons I had to learn when I was a 22 year old testosterone filled guy was that they were more scared of me than I was of them. And I, I had to learn to mm -hmm. consciously dial my body language back to not intimidate them, even though I wasn't trying to intimidate them, but, but I, it took me longer than it should have to really recognize that and learn that I had to consciously shrink a little bit at times to not intimidate them. And that was, that was one of the biggest uh, light bulb moments or keys for me and in, in really starting to get along with horses. So, so it does work two ways. Sometimes you want a little bit more of that and yeah. sometimes you have too much of it and you have to, you have to manage it on that side too. So I like your, I like your candor that, there quite a bit though. I, I appreciate there's, that. There, there's yeah. There's things that I get away with in the saddle that people don't, other people don't get away with because I'm little, I have a low center of gravity. I can do stuff in the saddle that, somebody else couldn't necessarily do, you know? And then also up until the most recent years, I've been made very aware that I don't have a very long enough leg. When I start watching some of these really good, good barrel racing trainers, those girls are five foot six, five foot seven, five foot eight. I'm five, three, you know, I've got a 29 inch inseam, you know, I don't have enough leg to put on that horse, you know, to help mm -hmm. support it. And those girls just kind of reach around with their leg and they can move that body around and support that horse's barrel. And you just go, God dang it. You know, what, what am I missing here? You know, I better, I got to do something to figure out how to make up for that. So, I mean, there's, there's pros and cons to all of it. Yep. Absolutely. You gotta gotta learn how to do the best you can with what you got and whatever your particular strengths and weaknesses are, and and you know yeah. that, that's fair enough. I will say here, you were talking about studs. I've I've ridden a whole lot of studs too. Uh, when, when particularly we're doing the cutting horse futurity horses and all, we would rarely get a gilding. Everything was a prospect, and so you were, you were going to break yep. him as a stud and have to deal with that for the first year regardless and if he was bad enough we'd geld him later but you know we had nothing but st studs and mares around for the most part and i don't think most people really appreciate how different uh studs can be they're, they're kind of like the ray hunt or tom dorrance saying about mules it's that they're they're just like a horse only more so uh that, that's mm -hmm. kind of true with horse with studs too a lot of things can be sort of amplified <laughs> with them and yeah yeah get, get out of hand in a hurry with them at certain times. Little quirky, little little bit quirky, little bit weird, little different, and yeah, just strong. There's a level of strength there that yeah. is just unmatched. And and of course, the more age you get on one, the tougher they get. Yeah, I'll tell a little story here. I had a a, a group of two year old studs. This has probably been ten or twelve years ago, and. I'm trying to remember the name of the sire here. And it's escaping me. But anyway, there were there were two particular little studs. One was just sort of a moderately framed little chestnut. He was out of a mare. I probably rode 10 of her colts, and he was somewhere in the middle of that. And her colts were all pretty easy to get along with, but he was the new flavor out of this different stallion. He was a stallion. And then I had another one that was a little black colt, and he was – built like a four by four post. I mean, he just was, you know, looked like a bodybuilder 
And I don't, one of the things that I'm very much against is isolating studs. I still, I try to make right. sure that they're horses. They, they go out and play, they're going to beat up on each other a little bit, but they'll be way better like that than locked away in a stall and not having any, any, yeah. you know, any herd behaviors to deal with. So I kicked these guys out in the arena for the first time together. And that little sorrel stud went to beating on the black horse, like, really 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 bad like trying to kill him and just as a two-year-old as you're saying most of the time the two-year-olds are babies they're not acting like the big boys and so i wasn't anticipating this so i grab a lunge whip but i'm going out there trying to physically separate them they don't have halters on or anything you know it was it was a uh, <laughs> it, it was a moment there i was definitely in that whole i wonder if somebody's gonna be around here to find my body before long after these things kill me you know and so i finally got them separated and and i knew the van that owned this little stud really well and so i said well i'm gonna go get three or four of my big older geldings and put them in here and and let them have a little talk with this guy about pecking order and all that stuff mm -hmm. it wasn't five minutes that little shit had those big geldings cowering over in the corner and i had to go oh my rescue <laughs> my big horses from him so I, I got him off of him, and then I made the phone calls. I don't think this one needs to stay a stud. You're not going to believe what, what we just had happen over yeah. here. So. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, if they're that aggressive yeah, at that age. Yeah, that, yeah. Yeah, when they're that cocky and they're full of themselves. Um, And I, <clears throat> I've had a friend tease me that I run a frat house here. And so, like, I literally tell people I have a frat house. I've got, I've got pens. There's, there's, you know, stud gelding 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 two studs two geldings you know big gelding i mean just it it's it, it it they're all of them are always screwing around they're always riding each other breaking something you know chasing each other around playing grab ass all the time but they all live together and one thing that i that i took from the halter horse ranch that i worked at I would have to bring something in out of pasture to be doctored on or whatever. And when I took it back out, you'd have yearling 1200 pound stud on a, you know, like a kite, right? I mean, they're not real halter broken and, um, you're walking it back out into a pen of like six others. And you always had to have somebody out there with you to help move the others away while you're turning this one loose. Cause they're just all wanting to screw around and you couldn't correct anybody. And so one thing that I took from that is on my own place, when we're putting somebody in or taking somebody out, the other ones aren't allowed to touch them. And if you're in a halter and a lead rope, your ass is mine. You are not allowed to do any screwing around or playing because you can kill me. And that's, and that's what people don't understand is how quickly they are capable of killing us, maiming us putting us in a wheelchair, breathing through a straw to get the wheelchair around, they don't realize that. So those other ones, when I walk into that pen, leading somebody in to turn them loose or whatever, they're not allowed to come around. They're not allowed to play with them until I've turned him loose. And so I've gotten really good feedback from horses that I've sold. You know, people are like, yeah, this horse got loose on the, on the farm and it came over to my horse and, and, you know, he just didn't do anything. And I'm like, yeah, because if he's in the tack, He's not allowed to respond. If he's if he's got any piece of equipment on with you, there is no response. It's not okay. I love it. You're you're taking me back to to my roots. I, when <laughs> anthropomorphism first came out, this was this was really where I saw the problem with it. 
when the word became popular, but it was in what I would call the Disney version of horsemanship. And that was that people would see the horse as spirit in a Disney movie and having all these thought processes and all of that. And they're totally divorced from what a horse really is and the types of behaviors that you're talking about that could get you hurt. Uh, and particularly, yeah. you know, um, this is just one of the things that's always made me a little squeamish about female coat starters is that you are 115 pounds. Your bone structure is not as dense as mine is and so forth. A, a kick that would bounce mm -hmm. off of me might put you in the hospital for six weeks. Right. And, and right. so I, I've known some, some ladies like yourself that they don't tend to have real long careers. I've, I've known several of them that got hurt pretty bad. Female vets, the same thing. I know mm -hmm. yeah. probably three female veterinarians, horse vets, that wound up having to have facial oh. reconstructive surgery because oh. they got they got kicked in the face and had their face crushed. Uh, and I think you either quit and you don't survive that or your horsemanship gets to a point where now you're safe and you're good. We were talking on the phone a couple of days ago about that, about seeing some of these videos that people put on the internet and and if you're a cult starter you're watching that going oh you're standing in a bad place right now he could get you right there oh yeah because you know, we learn where, i can't watch him yeah you know, where you're vulnerable yeah. and, and where you're not and there's a whole lot of people that do not understand where they're they're vulnerable and, and you only learn that the hard way unfortunately and and sometimes you don't like survive said, learning that the hard way. yeah <laughs> so yeah i like i i um i i I can't watch it when people send them to me. I can't watch them. I really struggle when like people are wanting to watch right outside the round pen, you know, cause I've seen them try to jump out the round pen and they hang up their front legs over the top of the round pen, or they go to jump and they hang the leg through the side of the round pen, or they've gotten my dog. When my dog is reaching up, trying to get them through the side of the round pen, they've kicked and got the dog. Um, I've watched them get my dogs. I, just this past year, I've had two different horses get two different dogs. And I mean, flat knock them out. And I mean, I was horrified. I'd never seen anything like this before. I mean, I've never had my dog get knocked out. And my dogs, my dogs are my kids. They're my family. All those, you know, all those fur baby things. But they are working animals, too. And they go out and work with me every day. And JD was really casual about it. He He's seen it before. He's been using dogs on the ranch since he was just a pup himself. And he's like, it's okay. She's going to be fine. And, and I'm like freaking out. I'm screaming <laughs> and I'm rubbing this dog and like, wake up. Oh my God. And, 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 and I mean, they're so incredibly quick and people don't have a healthy respect for how incredibly fast they are. We are not safe around them. Like we think we're in a spot where we're kind of safe, but we really aren't like, mm -hmm. like, if you take a leg away from one, yeah, it kind of slows it down a little bit, but it could still get you. Oh yeah, they they can paw and kick, and they're they're way quicker than we realize. So you you'd better be. A lot of people are standing flat footed all the time, and, and yeah, you know, hey, you you better be yeah. ready at any moment. Have, you're talking about getting knocked out. Have you ever seen a horse get knocked out? Yes, and like you know, flip over during halter breaking, hit its head. Or flip over during groundwork and hit its head. And, wow. you know, they get up and they have a different healthy respect for mm -hmm. what you're trying to do with it. Yeah, so it changes them. The Pasifina I was talking about earlier that jumped out of the round pen when I was putting the saddle on. So he actually, as he jumped out, he hung 
on the top rail on his stifles, which Brent brought his head oh down and he hit chin first and it knocked him smooth oh. out. And I'm, I mean, I'm like 19 when this happens. I thought, you know, he just broke his neck and died and nobody's going to believe that I'm not even in the pen with him. Right. So, so I'm running around the round pen to check on him and he kind of came to right about that moment. But let me tell you, he did not ever try to jump out of the round pen again. He learned that that is yeah. not, the, not the thing to do. It's the electric fence method of training, right? The positive punishment that you do not pee on an electric fence three times in a row. You, you, uh, you learn that that's something you don't ever want to do. Yeah. Again. And sometimes they need that, that, cold wake up call to to get it into their system so all right i think we and can you didn't expect- you didn't have a video you didn't have a camera you didn't have a camera at that time to video it either to tell the owner hey look this is what just happened to your horse either yeah. like we yeah. have that now <laughs> that's that was before those days for sure yeah <laughs> oh I, I could tell some stories but I, i've written actually a couple short stories about that guy he was always let me, I'll pontificate here for a minute. He was an insurance salesman. So a guy that made pretty good money and, and kind of the wannabe cowboy type. He had a, he wore a Texas star on his vest and stuff like that in Louisiana. And he told me once that he couldn't wear it in Texas because then he would be presenting as a Texas Ranger, but he could do it in Louisiana and it was fine, you know? So that was the sort of guy he was, but he was always looking for a deal. He wouldn't just go out and buy a good, decent horse. He was always looking for the fixer-upper and and mm-hmm. just, oh, it was just story after story after story, the horses that this guy would find. But anyway, I think uh, I was hoping to get to your, your barrel racing stuff before we got here, but timing-wise, I think it's time that we bring out this episode's sponsor. So, Okay, well, we'll go with the... We'll go with the barrel racing stories right after. <laughs> so I'm going to, I might not get through this one. I haven't had a chance to, usually I read it enough to desensitize myself. The last time <laughs> I read it, I had a, I had a little fit in the middle. So we'll see how candid this one comes out. But this episode, ladies and gentlemen, is brought to you by Starfish Glitter. Ladies and fancy men of the world. Do you see the absolute value in a horse that's shiny and sparkly? Are you constantly frustrated when you see all that glitter that you've tried to get to stick to your horse on the ground? Are you frustrated that the loudest neon leg protection available for your horse isn't also sparkly? Does the seat of your saddle look as scarred and tattered as the fenders on your dually? Allow Starfish products to help solve these problems for you. We've taken inspiration from watching barrel racers round that third barrel and patented a new glitter design based on the starfish. Starfish glitter attaches better than standard glitter because the serrated starfish arms of each particle entangle in with your horse's hair follicles and stick. Seriously, if you want this glitter gone, it's going to take a pressure washer. The extra angles and facets of our glitter act like the diamonds on those three to four engagement rings you've been collecting over the years and twinkle just like your eyes did each time you said yes. (laughs) Oh, Becky, I was going to get through it if you hadn't started. Come on. Additionally, starfish glitter is aerodynamically designed with scientists and MIT engineers to make your horse run faster. Just like face masks and Fauci, don't ask us how it works, just trust the science. You should also check out our new line of leg protection for your steed, 
leopard sprints. Our leopard sprints boots have dark and light colored starfish glitter impregnated into the pattern like a 1D finals horse. If you use the same pattern on all four legs, the camouflage makes it nearly impossible to tell on the replay videos that your horse crossfires after every turn. We are <laughs> proudly to offer a new Cruella DeVille. <laughs> You're killing me, Becky. <laughs> We're very proud to offer a new Cruella DeVille line in our leg protection as well. This pattern is a dead copy of the amazingly soft and beautiful blue-eyed Merle Toy Australian Shepherd that is your constant yapping companion. You won't even be able to tell when your precious baby Bling Bling runs under your other precious baby Dash for Firewater. Don't ask where we get the materials and we won't tell you. Be looking for our new seat protectors with Teflon. They'll help protect that $4,000 coats saddle with Stingray inlay from the crystals on the seat of your jeans. They'll also help cushion your greatest asset when you come back to the seat. Nobody likes a scarred up Stingray. Speaking of crystals and jeans, we've got a new line of denim out now. Our jeans are just as sparkly as the competitions, but we've added the Velcro directly to the jeans. If you buy the companion mount for the Teflon seat protectors, you'll never worry about leaving your straps at home again. Check out our entire line of fast and shiny products at www.starfish.net, where our shipping is always $50 and always the next day. All right. <laughs> Oh my God, the yappy mini Australian Shepherd. It is so true. I, I could have made that one eight pages long. I mean, yeah, there's a whole lot. Oh of man. We might get some hate mail back on that one, Becky, but we'll see. Oh yeah. Well, that's what JD liked about me. He said he said to his dad, he goes, Yeah, she doesn't have kind of a typical barrel racer's dog. I had a Springer Span I got a Springer Spaniel. And uh, and so I got a hunting dog, and that's not normal for for a barrel racer. I think the Springer Spaniel that is like the Hancock dog of the dog world. You know, um, <laughs> I don't know if you've ever heard this, but that there's a saying among so Springer Spaniels for those of you who might know are in the retriever group of the dog world, and they do a lot of the same jobs that black labs do. But the saying is yes. that that labs are born half trained, and spaniels die half trained. <laughs> now now i'll tell you this my first springer that we just he just passed away here a month ago um he was exceptional exceptional dog he was i called him just another another bachelor that lived in the house with us mm -hmm. um just just a person and um but he did not hunt and when jd met me he thought he had stuck a fat hog in the ass he was like we she's got a hunting dog and I little did I know when I got him that I was going to be moving to the pheasant hunting capital of the uh -huh. world, right? Yep. And and so I've got this beautiful hunting dog that does not hunt. He will he will go out by himself and and look for pheasants, but he would not retrieve. Absolutely did not retrieve anything and was afraid of gunfire. My fault though. He spent his first two years of his life in California and mostly working on a ranch. So when um we got his understudy rocky my current springer spaniel we got him to be a hunt dog because i do a lot of guiding here with jd in the fall when we have hunters come to the ranch and um and you know there's a there's a level of self-preservation that they can't have to be a good hunting dog mm -hmm. <laughs> they have to have no self-preservation because that's what makes them 
hit those barbed wire fences as hard as they do and flip over them like a linebacker to go after that bird. And he's a fabulous hunting dog, but he can be a little hard headed if he doesn't have his, you know, if it, he doesn't have his earpiece on, mm-hmm. you know, so he's four <laughs> years old and he, we wear, he still wears an earpiece at times. And, um, he still goes to all the barrel races with me and, and you'll love this story. Um, uh, we acquired a black lab from his brother, from his brother's hunting preserve last fall. And black lab, he's like seven, eight years old. And he's he's a professional. He's an outstanding dog. And so I'm just, I take the dogs for the walk, for a walk in the wintertime when it's just too snowy to do anything else. And I'm, I'm walking dogs and everybody has their collars on. I have three collars and four dogs. And I didn't have a collar on him because he's, he didn't need one, right? He didn't need one. And um, we just go out for a little walk out in the pasture and, you know, maybe for a mile and back to the house. Well, it was spring and, you know, all the little animals are starting to come out in the springtime. Well, they got out a little ways away from me and they retrieved a skunk. So Black Lab is bringing a skunk back to me. And poor little thing. I mean, he was spraying everybody. And I pulled out my phone because they're far enough away. I'm like, well, I might as well video this. And I'm like, no, Max, no, no bird, Max, no bird, drop it. And he's so proud of himself bringing me this skunk back, sprayed all of us. I was running to get the hell away from him. But, yeah, I posted that video to Facebook, and I think I posted it to YouTube. And, man, it went viral. I couldn't believe how viral it went. Everybody had a good time laughing about that. But, yeah, it stunk so bad for months. And I did all of the all of the homemade recipes to get rid of the skunk. It, it There's no getting rid of it. Just time. Yeah. We, I've had a few that took up residence in the barn and they're about half blind. I've walked within five or six feet of them multiple times. They eat mice and stuff like that. They're basically like a cat. So I kind of just leave them oh, alone. Really? Yeah. Huh. And now that we've got more cats, I haven't had any more skunks in the barn. But one of the, the videos, I think we were talking about some of our YouTube videos. I had done a what I was calling pasture pontifications. I would just take a lawn chair out into the pasture, put up a camera and start sitting there with the horses behind me and stuff. I had one of the skunks come out when I was doing that and started <laughs> circling around me. <laughs> I gave the camera a little warning, like, uh, just let y'all know there's a skunk right over there. And I turned the camera on him. So he had this way. You might see me exit stage left quite abruptly. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, man. Becky, we did have some Facebook questions for you, and uh, they're mostly right. about your barrel racing career, and I better get those in before I forget about them. Yep, so, yep. Let's see. You've already answered one of these questions. So one of the questions is, what, in your opinion, are the best and worst parts of the current barrel industry? The best part is, is yeah, there's a lot of money to be won at these events. You know, we're running at a lot of money now, but the worst part is, is, is it takes a lot of money to just go run at those events. Mm -hmm. And the genetics have gotten so, so good that it's a lot like, you know, I've been told by a rain person and you can tell me if this is true or not. And I, I think there's some truth to it. She said that, that, you know, if you have a horse that's struggling uh, doing a flying lead change, you just go get another horse that can do a flying lead change. You don't screw around with that one that can't do the flying lead change. 
If you can't train it, you just go get another one. And I think, and I don't know how much truth there is to that, but because the flying lead change is an integral part of the reining pattern, right? You know, Mm -hmm. you have a couple of them every, every time. And in the barrel racing industry, if you've got a horse that isn't clocking, isn't working, they can just go buy another one that will. Yeah. And there's so many good horses coming up that they can just go buy another one. And, and there's such good genetics, just freakish genetics. And for so long, going, what am I doing wrong? I'm not doing all the things. I'm not injecting or I'm not giving this supplement or I'm not, you know, giving it a breathing treatment before I go make a run. But it's getting to the point now where, yes, those the ones at the top, they're elite athletes. Don't take anything away from them. They're tough son of a guns, those ones that are in the top in the rodeo world, because those horses just can run on a Walmart parking lot. You know, it doesn't have to be perfect ground. Say at the lower level, you know, local level, when you've got those really good genetics and then you add in, you know, the best supplements in the world and the absolutely best hay and they've, they're, they're, in a barn and they're not getting the shit beat out of them by the weather, you know, cause that makes a difference too. you know, getting beat up by the weather. They're not standing on rocks or a hard gravelly ground. They're on something soft or they're under lights or whatever it may be that, that changes the game. I think quite a bit. And, you know, these futurities that these futurities and derbies that are um, just for a specific set of studs that have paid into it. So all the offspring only by this stud can, can run in this futurity. I've heard it said, um, I think it was, uh, her name is Bo. I'm trying to think what her last name is. It's a professional barrel racer. She said, you know, we're kind of shrinking the gene pool. If we're going to say only horses out of these 50 studs can run at this event. And I think there's a little bit of truth to that because we're getting oversaturated with very specific gene pool. But again, they're freaks of nature. So what do you what do you what do you do when you have something that's running like that? And then the other thing that we're doing there is if you want to look at it the other way, like, okay, so you're saying I can't play at your playground because I'm not bred like your horse is bred. Does that make sense? Like you're not allowing me to play with you guys. You're saying I can't play with you guys because I'm not bred the way you're bred. You know, so it's that too, but you know, there's plenty of open stuff out there for everybody to go to, but, but yeah, it's, it's, there's a lot of money to be one at it and the genetics are just freakish these days. Yeah. And I I think I've seen that in other things too. I think when, when you do those, those types of futurities where only certain stallions are nominated, that's more of a marketing thing i remember in cutting they had the millionaire futurity and if you bred your mare to one of these studs but but it was like our big futurity the top prize was a quarter of a million dollars you could go to this other futurity and the top prize was a million dollars so you know it's there was a lot of incentive to breed to their pool of stallions instead and and i think that thing only lasted a few years and and it kind of collapsed on itself and and i don't think that they really had the A-grade stallions, but you had, if you wanted to play in that pool, you had to stay in that pool, you know, and, and everything Mm -hmm. is getting more and more specialized and it's got its pros and cons, you know, we're, we're breaking some records and all of that kind of stuff. But at the same time, 
we're we're getting more and more horses that that are kind of one trick ponies. You don't see any horses that are that could yeah. compete in other events or anything like that. Or they're you know sure. it, it drives me kind of crazy. But I, I rem- the last time I watched the barrel racing at the NFR. I counted and it was eight of the horses had to be ponied into the arena. Eight out of 15 right. couldn't get there by themselves on a horse that's in the finals, you know, and that to me is yeah. just, it's unconscionable, but I mean, it is what it is. Those are the fastest horses, even if they don't really want to be there, you know? So uh, right. I don't, I don't know exactly where we go with that, but the money's there and the specialization will continue. I don't have any any doubts about that. So a little bit along these lines, there was another question about the role of various genetic muscle or metabolic type diseases in the racing quarter horse lines, or if that's even anything you've had to play with. You may be in a little more specialized area where it's not affected as much by racing, but um, okay, so here at the ranch, I can talk specifically for our ranch. We are five panel clean. We made a point several years ago when the five panel uh, testing first started to become big that we were going to be five panel clean. So we did blood tests on every single mare on this place. There's over a hundred head of horses here. And of course, all the studs were five panel tested, but now all of our mares are tested. We're not dealing with that. When I worked at the Halter Horse Ranch in California and dealing with the PSSM and the HYPP, I mean, I don't know how that is. I might piss off some halter people here, but I don't know how that is even acceptable. That's so inhumane to keep breeding the HYPP. It's watching a horse having an episode and trying to help a horse work through an episode. It is one of the most horrific things you'll ever see in you know, you can't unsee that when it happens really bad. And um, and then have trainers come to come pick out horses that they were going to take and, and go on with. And they say, oh, yeah, I preferred it to be at least one positive, if not double positive, because they're easier to fit. And you're like, how is that humane for that animal? So that that was something really difficult to deal with and why I wanted to get out of there, you know, quickly. <laughs> But uh, as far as with the um, the speed bred horses, I have not seen uh, it being a prevalent issue yet. I know PSSM is a problem, and people are having to change how they're feeding stuff and supplement stuff for that PSSM, but it hasn't affected me directly. I have had my personal horse tie up one time in five years of running her kind of a bizarre incident, you know, hot, hot day, probably didn't drink enough water, didn't get enough electrolytes and tied up on a ride out to the pasture, you know, conditioning right out to the pasture, isolated incident, never happened again. But I certainly wouldn't breed to anything that wasn't, wasn't five panel clean or six panel clean. Okay. I cringe a little at this question, but there's a question about barrel racers and bits. And if more joints equals more bend bits to lift a shoulder, straighten the shoulder, gag bits and all of that good stuff. I'm going to just take my headset off and walk away and let you know. <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. No. I knew this was going to come up. Okay. So there is some so truly cringe worthy is... stuff out there. Yes. This I I might I might commit Daniel Dolphin horsemanship blasphemy here. 
but I ride in two bits. I've got two bits in my arsenal, okay? And I don't start in a traditional snapple. And I brought my bit in so I could show you what I start, okay? Okay. So look at the mouthpiece. It looks like a straight, it looks like a curb bit, right? It looks like a basic curb bit, mole mouthpiece. And then I've got big rings for the cheek pieces. My, my bridle connects right here. My reins connect right at the corner of the mouth. And right here is like if you want to add like a drop nose band to it, okay? But the, this is the bit that I start everything in. And then if I'm going to continue to barrel race, I, I try to kind of stay in this bit. Now, the reason is, is because it's a keep it simple, stupid kind of situation. The more moving pieces we got, more opportunities there are for it to move and give mixed signals, right? I've been training. I learned in this bit. I, I learned back in, shoot, I want to say 2001. I think I was 21 years old. I learned how to train Colts in this bit and learned how to ride in this bit. And that's what my hands know. And that's how my hands are educated. And, and um, I'm, I'm decent in a snaffle. I'm not, I'm not as good as some of these other girls are in a snaffle by any a traditional snaffle by any means. Mm -hmm. um, I prefer the least amount of moving parts on the bit as possible to make as clear of a signal as possible. Cause let's face it, even at a walk or a standstill, our hands aren't always great, right? You know, even the best hands aren't always great. And I like to think I've got really good hands, but there are times when it hits the fan and, and your hands are all over the place. And so if your hands are all over the place on a gag hat combo, what message are you sending that horse? Okay. And then the reason for the big ring on this, on this bit, is because we've all seen the picture of the barrel horse that's turning the barrel and that bit is going through the damn mouth. And like, what kind of piece of equipment is that? I've also had a lot of, uh, um, I I've experienced this myself when I was riding in like a junior cow horse, dog bone, twisted wire, something or other, and turning, turning the barrel and that whole shank and cheek piece flip up over on its side. What kind of, what kind of, you know, direction are we giving then? Mm -hmm. And how bad are we pinching that horse's mouth? So that is, that's what I start Colts in. And that's what I'll continue to ride my barrel horses in. And then if I need, if I need um, leverage, I go to a Monty Foreman super short shank home curb bit. And that sounds big and whatever it, it sounds a little bit confusing but it's just a basic curb bit to for people i mean it's the same mouthpiece it's a short shank the the connectors for the uh, chin strap are as another ring so you have the the bridle connection as well as another ring for your for your curb chain that way you don't get any pinching and the lifting the shoulder the the stopping the bending Engaging the hind end, the holding the hind end from cross-firing, all of that stuff comes from training in good hands and good body position and good balance on that horse. And it doesn't come from the bit. Mm -hmm. And and people are looking for that quick fix. They're looking for that bit that's going to make everything magical and, and fix everything. But if your horse can't hold its lead and cross-fires through the turn, you know, just like you said, that, you know, our starfish glitter 
is going to help your horse from cross-firing through the turn, you know, if, if, if you can't keep your horse from cross-firing through the turn, there's no bit that's going to keep it from cross-firing through the turn. If your legs are out here starfishing, coming out of the turn, you're not supporting that horse's body with your legs. And you're not in the right position to help that horse in the turn. And that's the most frustrating thing to me when I see people not taking responsibility for their lack of horsemanship skills when they don't have a good run or they have a, a mess up or a knocked barrel. They're, they And they don't understand that it's lack of balance, lack of body control, lack of physical fitness on their part and their horse's part because they won't take responsibility for their own health. You know, they think that it's all about giving their horse the latest, greatest supplement, but yet they eat like shit. They drink Red Bull all the time. They have horrible relationships. They're surrounded by crappy people that are not supportive. And, um, you know, they're on to the next guy every couple of weeks or whatever, you know, and, 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 you know, they have no physical fitness. They don't have any core strength and they're not willing to do the discipline that it takes that's required. We expect so much out of our horses. And this goes for Colts too, two-year-old Colts. We expect so much out of those horses. We, they deserve us to have discipline in ourselves and, and, and work to support them in our horsemanship and our level of education as well as theirs. And there isn't any bit on the market that's going to change your eating habits, you know, because it all works together. It's all together. The, the things that you think every day, the things that you write down, the relationships that you talk to, the people you talk to, the quality of the equipment that you're using, the circle you run in, it all matters. And, and, you know, what you're listening to, what you're putting in your head, it all matters. And then you all, and then on top of that, you have horsemanship and keeping your horse healthy, taking your horse to the chiropractor, having a damn good shooter that's doing a good job on your horse's feet for you. You know, that's all part of it too. But if you can't get the correct freaking diagonal when you're post-trotting in the arena, I wouldn't expect the bit to lift that shoulder up when you're turning the second barrel and you're going to hit it. So. <laughs> all right. <laughs> That, is, that, that was, is that what you expected? That was fun to watch, <laughs> though, I have to say. I, I, I feel like you just had a little cathartic moment, and so that's good for everyone. <laughs> oh. And the bit that you're you're starting with, for those that can't see, uh, it, it was uh, just a ported solid mouthpiece, what would be in a, a typical, like, uh, grazing bit or, or something like that. And the only thing I would say about that is that's going to tend to not be a super lateral mouthpiece but it right. will have yep. tongue relief yep. uh, and you're you're saying you're taking your colts you start them in a round pin you leave and you're doing big straight lines and two mile pastures and stuff like that you know that you're not bending them around a whole lot and tons of little bitty circles uh you also had brought up your emergency stop which i guess would be a good thing to get into yeah right bet. now so so i i wouldn't have any trouble riding that bit myself i, I would say that that would probably be something a novice might have some trouble with because it's not going to help them on the lateral but once you understand the lateral and you can help the horse out then 30 minutes later that's going to be the same thing as anything else right so okay why don't, why don't it, we get into your emergency depends. stop yeah and it depends on the horse on the lateral too because you don't get a lot of lateral on a hancock blue valentine horse yeah. you don't get a lot of lateral at first they got big shoulders 
They got so much bone to them and mass to them that you're not going to get the lateral anyway. You need to work on keeping them in a straight line. And like we need straightness first, right? What's the, what are the, what's the pyramid of the dressage pyramid? You know, they, they want straightness is one of them. So we need straightness in our horses first. And then as I put the basic handle on them, then I start to get my lateral stuff. And in my first rides, I always walk trot lope on a first ride. I get turn on the forehand and I get a backup. And then I usually play with my rope on a very first ride. And I say that my turn on the forehand, that lateral maneuver is the ground foundation to all of my other maneuvers that I do. I'm not a fan of disengaging a hind end. I think um, I just listened to you. I think it was Van Van Hargis that mm-hmm. I just listened to one of your episodes. And he was saying we do that too much. And I think I, I think we do that way too much with horses. And I, I, I only do that. I only use that if I, I'm having a problem picking up a lead and I'm working on trying to kick that hip over and kind of counterbalance them off to get a correct lead on a colt. Um, but my mercy stops. So you look at me and you know, I'm not going to one rein stop anything. You know, if it decides it's going to go, it's going to go. And I am, there's nothing I can do to stop. And I have men that, that have sat there and told me, all you got to do is hold your hand straight out there and pull up. And I'm like, dude, when was the last time you were five, three and 115 pounds? Do you remember when you were five, three and 115 pounds, Daniel? Were you like in seventh grade, sixth grade? Probably something like that. Yeah. 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 So you probably weren't thinking about stopping a horse then. You, you were a jockey, right? So you were worried about running them, huh? Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) So, so I go, you know, the last time you were my size, you weren't trying to stop anything and you don't know what it's like to be me. So on a side note, this is where I get a little bit frustrated with women that idolize some of these men that are on RFD TV that are teaching them how to do these things. And it's like, you're idolizing a man. I mean, I don't want to take anything away from what they're doing on there because, you know, they're, they're educating the world to horsemanship. But also, we have to remember that, you know, there are different species than we are. And, and, we, and we, you know, we have different sizes. Again, we go back to the size, the sex, the smell, the, the feel, all of that is different. And, um, and so my emergency stop on the, it starts on the ground. Okay. And, and it's, again, it's one of those things that it's, it's, it's tough to watch if you've never seen it done. I've never shown it on a groundwork video because it's one of those things that people could kill a horse or kill themselves, but I bit them around and I never had any use for bitting a horse around. I did it with the Western Pleasure Trainer back in the day, and I and you know we bit a horse around and leave it in the round pen or leave it in the stall and then so, walk away. And, are you talking about like tying a rein back to the saddle? Yeah. Okay. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Tying the bit back to tying them by the bit back to the saddle or to the tail, whatever people use. And um, I never had any had any use for it. I never understood it. Didn't get it. But uh, I went and worked with with a gal here. I guess it's been about eight years ago now, and she's one of my close friends and mentors. And she showed me how to tie the head around and flag them and keep them moving. So I flag them and keep them moving, keep them moving. I'm, and I'm, and this is where we go way above threshold. We go way, we, you know, we get them upset and we can flip them over if we're not careful. But we see what happens when we connect that rein to the bit and pull their head around. And if they've never had to give their head with a bit in their mouth, and they decide to go running off with us. 
dude, we're going to get hurt. You know, we're going to get hurt really bad. So we need to teach them what that feel is. You know, hey, we're going to go hard, buddy. You know, and I might not be the one to do it, but the person that I sell this horse to might grab a hold of this horse's face and really rip it around. And I need that horse not to blow up and flip over on that rider. Mm -hmm. Um, Because you never know what people are going to do, right? So I bid them around and I flag them hard. I flag hard, hard, hard. And then I'll tell them, whoa, and I want them to stop. And I want them with their butt facing me and kind of, and you know, they're bent around, let's say they're bent around to the left and they're looking at me with both eyes, but their butt's facing with me. And I tell them, whoa, and then I go up and save them. And I pet them on the butt and rub them on the butt and make friends with that hind end. Because what in, in the wild, what gets them first? They, when, when, when a wild animal gets them, they get, get it by the hind end. So I got to go up and make friends with that hind end. At this point, I'm already pretty confident this horse, course, isn't going to kick my head off, right? I'm not just like randomly going up to something that, yeah. you know, I've, be... I've been working with this. Yeah, yeah, I've been working with this sucker for a while now. So I go up and I release the pressure on that rein. And I usually do it two times each direction, you know, but I, I say to him, I'm the person that says my rub and pet, rub and pet all over. And I'm the good guy. And I approach hard. I want to be able to approach these horses aggressively and they know to stand their ground and take it when I come up to them because I'm not thumping on them. I'm not coming after them to get them. I'm not coming after them to spank on them. They got to know that I'm going to save them when they're in a bind. Yeah. The pressure they happens got, when they, you're not there, right? When yes, you get there, the pressure yes. is off. So they start looking yes. for, hey, come here and save me, yeah. lady, right? Yes. I'm going to fix this when I get there. And so after I do that, they are pretty darn soft both directions. And so on first ride, when I tell them, well, and I barely get three quarters of the way around the, around the round pen, I take my reins into one hand, I slide my hands up their neck, and I take my inside rein out and around and tell them, whoa. And I bend that head around. I go to my thigh. Because ideally, you want them to lower the neck and head lower than the, the, the withers, right? You want to get that dopamine hit. You want that down regulation. And then once you get that head there, pet and rub. And then pet and rub on the butt. All you want. All of this is good, right? Because it translates what we did on the ground is now what I'm doing on your back. I'm the same person. I'm still rubbing and petting all over you. I do it three times both directions. Change direction each time. Because every time we change direction with a horse, it's helping to down-regulate them. If you're ever in a bind, drop to trot lead changes anytime you change direction. So it's Emergency stop to the left, emergency stop to the right. And we do it at the walk, we do it at the trot, we do it at the low. And once we've got that, they're looking for the stop. And because what happens, you know, oftentimes when when something happens and we get out of position, we go to their neck, we fall onto their neck, or we fall onto their butt. And this horse has to know that I'm going to, like I deliberately get sloppy, mm-hmm. you know, and kind of flop on them a little bit. And they've got to accept that. They've got to take it, right? They've got to take it. They got to know that it's okay. That this they can't be scared of this stuff happening on them, because I'd like to think of myself as a pretty good rider, and and I got pretty good equitation. But the next person may not, and if they're flopping around, they got to know that hey, that's okay. That somebody doesn't necessarily have the best balance up on them. So that's the cue that I put together. 
it, so it's so it starts with the cue with the going to one hand, reins up the neck, down my inside rein, and, and this is something I practice on everything. I've had to use it on my barrel horse at a rodeo when we ran out of the arena. You run out of the arena, open gate, and you're into the parking lot. You know, you're like, holy shit, we got to stop now. You know, oh my god, this is you know this parking lot came fast. And so I had to use it on her and, and, and she came right down and she's like, okay, no big deal. You know, mm-hmm. but people don't practice stopping their horses. You know, that, that's just that they don't practice stopping. And so that's the initial emergency stop, put a cue to it. And, and I have so much muscle memory behind it that I can use it at my discretion whenever I need to, you know, it's, it's not working out. Somebody's getting upset. Somebody's spooking at something. Somebody um, got worked up over the dog flushing up a bird or whatever. I can bend them into an emergency stop, sit there, and it just reprograms the brain like that, and I can start all over again with what I'm doing. Change direction. I love it. Yep, very good. I, um, I, I can definitely tell that you have started a lot of cults and, and you have uh, you have learned a lot of things. I I, I I can't, there's not a thing in here I would disagree with. Um, I'm, I'm right on board with all of it. I, I, I too agree. It is another of my pet peeves and I don't think I've ever mentioned this one before, but the equitation crowd, I think that that whole prim and proper way of riding is great, but it is for finishing horses if you are starting colts and you try to do that, you are doing a, a disservice and you're setting things up uh, poorly. I think exactly like I said, you need to flop around on them. You need to get out of position. One of the advantages of being a, a decent sized guy like I am is if I have a horse that is having a hard time taking one lead or the other, I just lean that way and he's got to come with me yeah. or fall down. You know, yep. it's, I can get him in that lead. I promise you, because we're going to fall down or he's going to have to take it one of the two. Right. But I'm going to be mm-hmm. way outside of these parameters of proper equitation. But then you just you, you you get it smaller and smaller and smaller. And then they get a really, really good tight feel. But like you say, if if you put some kid on that horse later on or whatever and they do something silly, that that should not be the first time that horse has ever looked up and seen someone in that spot. Right. That should happen from the beginning and when they're getting comfortable. So. Or just wow. snatching at their face, you know, like that's the spook, the spook that happens. And you, what do you first thing you do? You grab at the reins and we all are guilty of doing this. Like my dogs are always doing something to spook those horses when I'm riding them out. And I deliberately ride out with dogs because they got to get used to it. And, and this cult will spook and I grab at the reins, you know, or, you know, fumbling around and they got to know that that's okay. That's no big deal. Mm-hmm. I, I think quick hands is probably one. If we could just eliminate quick hands, that would probably solve 90% of the horse problems out there. Uh, I've tried, I'm trying to popularize this saying that you can pull hard slowly and you're not going to scare a horse or do any damage to the relationship, but you can pull lightly quickly and scare the hell out of them. And so there's your emergency stop to me boiled down in short order. <laughs> all right i hope you're gonna laugh at this one why do okay. barrel racers do flying chinese splits in the air and chicken wings slam their legs into the ribs of the horse after the third barrel i think we've kind of already talked i don't know i um, i don't i don't know what i don't know i can tell you a couple things first of all their equipment is is crap okay the equipment is bad 
Um, it's getting better. It's getting a lot better. Saddle makers are doing a better job of fitting saddles to these horses. The seats are getting better for these riders. But we're not putting any material in these saddles to help with the impact protection because there's a lot of impact going on. And I'm and and I pop out of the saddle every once in a while. I'm not gonna lie. I'm I'm riding a 16 hand year, 16 hand gelding now. And he's a monster. He is so big and strong. He pops me out. I, I have to work really hard to be strong enough to ride him. But like I said, I work really hard at it. it there's kettlebell, there's core work, there's jogging, there's there's some exercise and some conditioning work on my end going on to strengthen my own body to be able to ride this sucker. I think they're lacking the body control and nobody has held them responsible for their poor horsemanship and when the person who is winning a bunch is doing it that makes it okay and the person what they don't realize is the person that's winning a bunch has the genetics to go and win on and they've won before i think this is another thing that's yeah. super important is they're winning in spite of it not because of it yeah that uh once you've won and you know what winning feels like you can win again. And as far as cold starting goes, I, I, I've won several of those little cult futurities. And I know, I just know how to get that cult ready for that futurity. You know, all what his curriculum has to look like, what he should be doing at what time, how he should be riding, how his lead change should feel, how his stop should feel what it starts to feel like if he's getting tired and he's getting, you know, I'm burning him out, you know, and when I need to back off of him and go back again, I think those gals that are winning, especially the ones that are winning on multiple horses, you have the one hit wonders that win on the same horse all the time, but then you have other girls that are winning on multiple horses and they know, I think they know what winning feels like and they know how to make one that wins. You know, not only do they have the genetics, they have the financial backing, but they know what that feels like. And they know they know what it takes to be a champion. They're not eating. I don't think they're eating Cheetos and drinking Mountain Dew going down the road. I agree. I think this lady's question basically boils down to, do you think that the NBHA is going to ever do any sorts of rules discouraging this sort of stuff? Which I would have mixed feelings on, uh, to be I, honest. I but, yeah, I haven't, I haven't sniffed any wins along those those routes. I don't think it's on the radar at all. So, um, no, no, they would just. The only thing is with you know equipment that's abusive, and and really, I mean, my bit could be abusive if I used it improperly, right? Yeah. You know. So. You know, yeah. anything could be abusive. So the, I guess this next one is on if you have any advice on how to afford some of these horses, because as you said, the, these one and two D horses can be what twenty five thousand minimum could could easily be fifty, sixty, seventy, yeah, hundred thousand dollars. So uh, it, it is not a an inexpensive game. So I'll I'll, I'll just boil everything down to any advice on how to. Uh, how to get a nice horse without $50,000. Well, you can start with some good genetics. You can buy a prospect and um, you've got to have the grit and determination to keep working at that horse. There's a fine line between 
continuing to work at something that's never going to amount to anything and continuing to work on something because you're getting close to making it. Now, I was raised in an apartment on a busy street in Southern California. And my parents bought my first horse for me when I was 10 and he was 10 and he was a purebred Arabian. And it was like the $650 package. You know, you get the saddle and the bridle and the brush bucket with him. And it was the best that they could do for me. And it was the best I could do at the time. And I, you know, I'd read enough black stallion books and Marjorie Henry books that, um, you know, it's one of those things that's just in your blood. And my my family is not horsey. They have animals for pets, but they, they are not horsey, ranchy, nothing. I am a complete freak for my family. Um, my parents come out here to the ranch and they go, oh, my God, this is what we always wanted for you, you know, when they see the place. And, 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 and so, you know, I was raised riding around a stable. I was the biggest accident waiting to happen. I didn't have my first bad accident until I was like 23 or so. So it took a while. I had wrote a lot of stupid stuff before I'd had my really first bad accident. Um, but you have to have the grit. You have to take, take advice from any single person that will give you advice. You have to take the lessons. You can put your horse in training and pay for your horse to go in training, but you could dump a lot of money putting your horse in training. But you better improve your own horsemanship because that's kind of how I've always done it. I've never gone out and spent more than $8,500 on a prospect and made it just as good as I could possibly make it. And one of the things that I've done along the way is I've taken stuff that other people didn't get along with. You know, I didn't realize it, but this one was rearing and bucking over in the warm-up pen and they were really not getting along with her in the arena. And I joked and I said, hey, she'd look really good tied to my trailer. And they put her on my trailer and sent me home with her and then gave me a price. And, and I think I spent $3,500 on her. And I mean, that horse was a rodeo horse. She packed kids. She did everything. But I had to restart her and start mm -hmm. all over again. It took me several years to get, I mean, about two to three years to get there again. It wasn't an overnight deal. But you have to have the grit to keep going and you have to have the horsemanship to keep going on them to make one. And then you got to hope at the end of it all that they stay sound, you know, because they don't all stay sound or you have to be willing to do all the extra stuff for it to help it stay sound. Yep. I, I mean, I, I don't know if that if, if that was an answer that they were looking for, but man, you just have to get, have the grit to get up every single day and suck at it over and over and over again, but keep on trying to improve tiny little bits and, and keep working. I'm in that place right now with my new gelding. I've had him for a year and a half. We had a big high at the beginning of the season. We won a saddle back in May and we're kind of on the downhill slope right now. And we're in this, we're in this up and downhill pendulum going, you know, this, this, curve you know this learning curve trying to figure each other out trying to figure out what his needs are you know me trying to ride him better and you know train him better and i i give myself three years any new horse i start it takes three years to make a 1d barrel horse if you've even got the genetics to go with well all sounds good to me a couple of things i'll add to there if you don't mind is yeah Stay keeping that horse. You talk about the horsemanship, but a big part of that is being protective of your horse. And the more you run them hard and come out crossfire and then things where 
that's going to be damaging to that horse's body. They're not supposed to cross fire. They're a lot more likely to hit themselves. If you're having that kind of stuff happen, you'd better slow down and get a hold of it because it's going to compound on itself and lead to bigger problems if it's not already indicating a problem. And you had also mentioned the shoe-in before, and mm -hmm. that's one of those things I've, I've, I've been studying that for years. I'm pretty convinced that the difference between an A plus shoeing job and a pretty good shoeing job is like half a millimeter here and there. <laughs> it's not much. Mm -hmm. And the difference yeah. between a pretty darn good shoeing job and a pretty crappy one is just another millimeter or two. It's not much at all. And uh, those differences definitely compound over time and your farrier can make or break you for sure. So uh, all yep. stuff you better be keeping an eye on and, and, and one thing I will say, you, you had mentioned about taking advice everywhere. I do find we live in kind of an information age, but we also live in a misinformation age. So I kind of warn people to be a little bit careful where you get advice sometimes. Sure. Yeah. Particularly, I'm, I'm going to just be hurtfully candid here, but there are some people in that group that don't know their butt from a hole in the ground that are happy to give you right. all kind of advice. So, so you had yeah. better be really careful yeah. on that, in my opinion. Yeah. At least. Yeah. And, and you better know your leads and you better have some core strength because one thing that, that these girls do, and, and I, and I have been guilty of it as well, is the, the, what do they call it? They call it getting dashboarded on the barrel where they go to make the turn and the horse rates down and their whole front end slams over the front of the horse, you know, and they lean really hard. And these gals that think they got to lean really hard in the turn. And what they don't realize is that when you start to look at physiology and uh, kinetics and, and what is happening there in that turn, there's a point there where that, like, let's say it's the left, left, first left barrel. Okay. And, there's a point there where that front left foot is the only foot on the ground. And when you throw your body forward and you've got all that momentum flying forward on that one front left foot, I mean, what are we doing? You know, not only do we have the force of that horse's body coming down on that one front left foot, but our weight as well. And so we need to learn how to sit up and lean away from all turns and all leads and get back on that hind end on that horse. And, um, and there's just not enough people that have figured that out yet. And, and it, go, it also goes back to, um, you know, equipment because some saddles put you in a better position than others, mm -hmm. you know, some, and, and, you know, and, and some of these saddle makers got figured out, boy, they put a big old hunk and pommel on there and a stand up horn. You're going to stay back. You know, it's going to make you stay back, but also, you know, some of these really cheaper makers are, are hanging the, the fenders too far back. And so when you hit that momentum, it doesn't matter what you do, your legs swing back and there's nothing you can do about it when your legs swing back and you end up tipping forward on that horse. Yep. Uh, once again, I couldn't agree with anything you just said more. That uh, was fantastic. Um, so we've already been harpooning barrel racers, but Here's a question on what are some common beliefs people have of barrel racers that you would like to clear up or that you would tend to agree with? Um, 
Well, I think they might say that we don't care about our horses or that, or, you know, or, you know, we're just sticking needles into our horses or supplements or whatever. And I think, I think we probably care about our horses too much. You know, we, we really do care about our horses. We want them, you know, we want the best for them, right? We really do. We just maybe not, don't know how, you know, don't know what mm-hmm. the best route is. And because when we open up the Barrel Horse News Magazine, the first thing we get hit with is a supplement. The next thing we get hit with uh, is, um, you know, use these leg wraps, you know, put these neoprene leg wraps on your horse while he's riding in the trailer in 100 degrees. That sounds like a great plan. Doesn't, doesn't that sound good to you? Absolutely. I want to be wrapped up in neoprene in 100 degrees. You know, but, but make that's, sure he's dehydrated before we even start. Right, right. I think that's that's one of the things. I, I think they do really want the best for their horse, genuinely want the best. They just don't know how. And they're getting all of this marketing shoved down their throat, and and there's just so much to choose from. That's that's part of it. I, I mm-hmm. think that's probably the biggest misconception. Um, I know my personal horses aren't meatheads. I, I'm adamant. When One of my very first horses... I thought because I could ride the horse that was walking into the arena on the hind two legs, you know, and being an idiot walking in, I thought because I could ride that, that made me a better horseman. And in reality, it made me a poor horseman because I didn't know how to keep my horse from doing that. And so I've always worked really, really hard at preventing gait problems, sour issues, horses that ran past the barrel, turned before the barrel, all of those things general acting like a barrel horse things and and my newest horse he's bred a little bit hotter and so he's been a little bit tougher to get through that and and I'm trying to explain to JD you know what he does at the barrel race because JD doesn't go with me to any of these and and he goes so you mean to tell me he's acting like a barrel horse and I'm like yes exactly (laughs) nailed it (laughs) and and it's totally acceptable to him but meanwhile I'll come home and I'll help JD move bulls on this horse and he's totally fine to go out and help move bulls from one pasture to the next. So, um, you know, I think I think that's probably the care is the biggest mix misconception. And trying to weed out what piece of equipment is good and what's bad, you know. And they, they charge so much money for this stuff. And you just go, you think you're doing right when you see orthopedic and supportive and um, protective. And really, it's just marketing. Yeah. You know, it's just marketing. Y'all have some sure enough predators in the marketing seas of the barrel horse world. Some of the bits and things and and all is, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, for for sure. You, you're you're going to have mm-hmm. to look far and wide to find the good stuff because it's it's sure not put in front of your face for the most part. One thing I'll mm-hmm. say, I'm I'm really happy to see that. And the next question is about what you have seen change in the barrel horse world over the last twenty years. To me, it seems like 10 years ago, if I go to a barrel race, I'm expecting to see a tie down on 90% of the horses. And now it seems like I hardly ever see one, mm-hmm. which I think is a, is a major change. And I don't know how they didn't have more horses go down with a tie down on and them not able to really balance themselves correctly or cripple themselves just for the same reason. So that's one thing I've seen that I think is is definitely moving in a positive direction. What, what other changes do you think you've seen in the last, in, throughout your career? Well, we're getting better horsemanship. We are getting the, the better horse, the better horsemen are rising to the top. They really are, especially in the futurity world. 
my God, those girls are some of the best riders, best jockeys, best trainers on the planet. Now, granted, they get to pick what they ride. You know, they're getting and, – and it's just – it's no different than me. I get 10 Colts in and I get to say, you know, I don't want to ride those five. Those five don't really want to get along. I'm not going to screw with those five. I'm going to work on these five. Those girls, they'll pile two trailer loads in the wintertime and they'll go to Texas or Arizona, you know, from up in this area. Or they'll come up from Texas to this area or they go to Montana and or, or whatnot. And, and um, their horsemanship is so good. They're getting the best genetics on the planet to ride, but their horsemanship has gotten so much better. And uh, the horses are lasting longer. So, you know, better care and um, more, you know, it used to be that if you had something break or whatever on them, they were done. And now we can take a little bone chip. I just had this last week on a last Tuesday. I took a horse into, I had a, a three-year-old and he's a ranch gelding that, that um, he popped a little OCD lesion off his hawk. And I don't know how long we've been doing this for, but I was able to go in and just have it scraped off. And they sent me home same day. They're like, well, mm-hmm. he's awake enough. You can just load him back on the trailer and take him home. I'd never done that before. Mm-hmm. You know, and it really wasn't that expensive of a surgery. Either. It was like, I don't know. 1300 bucks or something like that and and you know back in the day it was you thought it was thousands of dollars and the horse didn't have a future and they're like oh yeah he's going to be fine you know he'll go right back to work give him a few months and and so i think we're seeing horses that are able to come back from able to have surgery and come back from surgery and go right back to work so lot lots lots of um a, a lots of science coming, you know, that's that that's made a lot of progress in keeping horses going. Mm-hmm. I, I think that I would say of the two year olds that I have dealt with that wound up not sound enough that we had to quit on, I would say probably a third of them were from OCDs, which is, mm-hmm. in my understanding, that's a genetic condition. It doesn't have anything to do with how they were ridden or anything like that. It's just that some are going to get it and some aren't. And so uh, there's another another statistic of that horror of riding two-year-olds that really doesn't have anything to do with what we're actually doing with them. But that's right. That's pretty good. Or you're thing. pushing them hard, or like you're pushing them hard with feed, and they're growing fast, mm-hmm. and stuff's just not growing properly. Yeah. Yeah, developing properly, yeah. And then the last question would be, where, when, and how did barrel racing start? Gosh, I don't know. I don't know. I imagine it was something that started down in Texas, you know? Um, I would imagine that probably wasn't even women in the beginning. It was just some cowboys making a bet about, you know, I, I bet I could go around this tree and that. And before long, yeah. the girl comes on and she weighed 50 pounds less than the guys, which gave the right? horse an advantage. And she was spanking them. And before long, it's a girl sport, not a guy sport. Yeah. That would be my guess anyway. Yeah. But, well, I mean, because I can tell you how the other ranch events started. You know, I mean, it's pretty easy. Saddle bronc riding and bareback bronc riding. You know, they're just trying to ride the horse. You know, when you think of steer wrestling, also the same thing with like, like with Mexican tailing, you know, the Mexican rodeos where they tail the, you know, how did they catch those steers before they had ropes? They had to run them down somehow, right? Mm-hmm. Before somebody knew to build a rope to rope them. 
And so the Mexican tailors, you know, they, they tail them. And I would think the same thing with the steer wrestling. Yeah, that goes back. The, the tailing goes back to the days of the hawk knife, too. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but they would tail them. Uh-uh. This, this was during the hide and tallow trade days, like in California. So they would run up, grab the tail. They would dally the tail. And they had a knife with a little hook in it. And they would reach down and cut the major tendon on one of the back legs and then turn their horse, sweeping the animal down. And then they couldn't get back up. They disabled a back leg on them and they would slit their throat. And then they would take the hide from the animal, all the major fat deposits, pack that in a barrel and ship uh-huh. it to Europe. That was that was really the origination of the cattle market in the United States. It had nothing to do with meat. It was about the hides and the fat. And uh, so like the longhorns huh. and, and those cattle, that's really what they were. And they would wait till they were about three. That's when the animals had the most amount of fat on them. You can actually read a lot. Of, we don't hardly have horn cattle in the world anymore, but if you leave horns on cattle, they get a growth ring every year. And so you can actually look at the horns mm-hmm. on the cow and tell how old they are. And so they say, that's a three-year-old. He's fat mm-hmm. enough. And you hawk knife him and, and boom, there you go. So huh. um, I don't think that would pass PETA's scrutiny these Probably days, <laughs> but that's, Probably that's not. where it originated. Yeah. Huh. Uh, same thing with buffalo. You know, they were hunting buffalo for the hides, not for the meat. So, yeah. uh, same kind of deal. So, right. Why don't you tell us? We had talked a little bit about some of the ranch business that y'all have going on. You've got this sale that y'all are doing each year. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Okay. The last four years, we've been putting on a production sale. And uh, we have three other partners. We drive down to Missouri with our Colts and sell our horses down there. Um, we run roughly 60, 70 horses through the sale. Lowing Ranch takes about 30 head, 25 to 30 head, depending on who we decide to keep and, and who goes. Um, we always have to keep replacements back every year, and we also have to keep riders back for me. And part of my starting colt is, is we pick out stuff for me to start that we're going to offer in a production sale. And it's usually something pretty darn good. I mean, we don't, we hold the best stuff back for this. It's something that, you know, granted they're two, three, four years old, but I have vetted them very well. We make sure that they're going to get along with anybody. We make sure they're, they, you know, first and foremost, they got to have the disposition. They got to be pretty they got to have the color. They got to have the, the bone structure. And, you know, a nice pedigree is always nice. Um, but we expose them to everything on the ranch we can. I usually call them with me to rodeos and barrel races. So they're getting the whole barrel racing experience, too, as well. So nothing like riding a colt in a warm-up arena with a bunch of barrel racers. So I take usually one or two riders down with me to offer. And um, I've tried to expose them, like I said, to everything on the ranch. They've been branded on. They've tracked the cows in the pasture. You know, uh, the dogs, they ride out with the dogs. They've ridden with the tractor, the four-wheeler, the side-by-side. Anything that I've ponied off of them, just anything that I could possibly do to to get them prepared to go on to the next person. And and like like you can't say that they're, quote-unquote, a finished horse, so to speak, because they're two, three, and four years old. And... Um, but I, I, I've really, really tried pretty darn hard to get them as broken trained as I possibly can for where they're at in their life. And uh, generally, you know, people are calling me, visiting with me about, you know, what we have to offer. And 
I can kind of let them know if this horse is going to work for them or not. And, and like I've told you before, when we visited that if I, if I am not confident that I could send this horse 1500 miles away and know that it's going to work for anybody, it doesn't go because it's no good for that horse. It's no good for the person that buys it. It's no good for the ranch. If that horse doesn't get along and work for that person. And so far we've had horses go off to be mounted shooting horses, They've gone off to be, you know, what's the new versatility mountain ranch challenge, ranch trail challenge deal? I think mm. um, they're doing now. They're doing it a lot in the in in Washington in the north mm-hmm. the northwestern area. They're doing that, and they're roping off of them. Um, you know, we start out with something really user friendly to begin with. So I always have horses going to that. Our sale is always the second weekend of September and JD halter breaks all of the babies that go two years ago. He started a new program through the sale where he's offering a kid's bid. And uh, when JD was just a pup, he uh, tells a story about one of the first times he ever got to bid on a mare with his dad and his dad made him do the bidding and raise his hand in the auction ring. And, and um, you know, he was pretty intimidated by, you know, the, the, mature people in the audience that were bidding against him and he ended up getting the mare bought and it's one of the foundation mares here at the place and jd decided he wanted to offer a kid's bid at the horse sale and kids have to sign up parents permission the whole nine yards you know and and he said i don't care if this colt sells for 50 bucks or five thousand dollars right he's like i just you know i want to give kids the opportunity to bid you know against other kids so up to 16 16 years old so the very first two so far, they've been super successful. These Colts have sold for, I believe, over $5,000. And um, what we decided to do with that money is put it back into a scholarship fund. And so now every year on top of offering a kid's bid horse, we're offering a scholarship to the kids that are 17, 18, and 19 years old that are wishing to continue their education, preferably in agriculture. Whether, you know, there's been a lot of agriculture, um, obviously we farm and ranch, um, but uh, JD's grandma, his stepmom, several family members, you know, they're teachers. And so he's, he, he wants to promote people that are wanting to either go back to school or go to a trade school and learn a trade, you know, whether they want to learn a trade to, you know, be a mechanic and work on tractors, you know, that fabulous, right? Because it's going to help all of us get down the road a little bit better, right? So he's trying to promote that. We pick out the kid that wins the scholarship roughly in May. And so we've already got the kid picked out that that won the scholarship. We haven't picked out the colt yet for the kids bid this year, but the colt is always something that's, you know, it's gentle. It's not, we're not picking out the bronchy one that doesn't want to get along for these kids. We pick out something that's pretty darn safe to be around for these kids and for these kids to bid on. And it's so much fun. It is so much fun to watch these little kids bid in the stands it's it and we you know we had the kid come down take a picture with the colt in the ring it's a lot of fun and and it's a nice break in the sale um you know we just wanted to do something different and and offer something different and then last year jd's nephew levi he had a friend that passed away from cancer and it slips my mind right now what cancer he had but levi chose to offer one of his colts that's with the Lowing partnership he chose to offer one of his colts the proceeds from that colt to the family of the friend that 
he lost to cancer. And, you know, we've all kind of been, been hit in some way by cancer. And I don't want to say touch. I mean, hit, you know, we, it's not gone are the days that like, Hey, I've got a coworker with a dad that, you know, that has a stepkid that, you know, it's not like that anymore. It's like, it's close family members that we know and are dear and close to our hearts that are, that are dealing with cancer. Most recently, my mom passed away to cancer in May and it was, aggressive it was fast we did surgery she never recovered from the surgery it moved into her lungs and we lost her in may i mean she was diagnosed in january late january early february so we decided we're going to pick a cancer every year i mean doesn't sound (laughs) pick a cancer but we're going to support breast cancer awareness this year and we are promoting our own little fundraiser, Riding for a Reason, 76 days, 76 miles. We started it on July 21st, and we are ending it on October 4th, which would have been my mom's 76th birthday, and then October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And so we are asking for donations on the website. It goes directly to the website. Like we don't even touch the money, but it goes directly to the website to Breast Cancer Research, and we are going to have the breast cancer awareness folks from um, the Ozarks come down to our horse sale in Missouri at the Ozark Empire Fairgrounds. And they're going to have a booth set up, you know, just for general, general promotion and, and, um, you know, asking for donations and whatnot. And so our goal is $7,600 to raise for breast cancer research. And also JD has picked out a little red roan, Colt, and he, you know how red roads kind of have a pink hue to them, you know, mm-hmm. when when they're changing color. So he picked a little red roan out, and this is going to be the breast cancer colt. And a percentage of that colt, when it sells, is going to go to a family that's been hit pretty hard with, you know, breast cancer, you know, within their family. So we're trying to support our surrounding communities with our horse sale and give out to others, and so. You know, depending on when this podcast comes out, you can join anytime. And and all I've been doing to track my mileage is I just hit that, you know, I got a silly little app on my phone that tracks my mileage and I just turn it on when I start my ride. And I mean, there's some days where I get eight miles in and I mean between a couple of horses. Mm-hmm. But I can get, you know, that many miles in and and so it's pretty easy to do. And whether you want to ride, whether you want to walk bike you know we told people hey if you're riding you're riding lawnmower around mowing your yard you know set your set your thing you know and and track it how much you get out and go do something you know we're trying to encourage people to get out exercise do something nobody ever tells you how much how difficult it's going to be to deal with the existing parent you know when this happens and so encouraging my dad to get out and walk get him out to do something get him out to go go out and do something with other people and just just be active. Yeah. Get out of the house. And he's in, and he's got pets and and he's got my mom's dogs and my mom has a therapy dog and and he's going to start taking that dog into hospitals and stuff that my mom used to do that. But uh, like, Hey, you got to take that dog out for a walk and getting him to get his miles in, you know, get his steps in every day. So that's, that's kind of what, what it amounts to with our horse sale. Um, You know, we're trying to offer quality horses and, and um, 
you know, the one thing about allowing ranch horses is they will, they're going to hold up. They're going to last. They, they got the bone and foot on them. They got the structure. You're not going to find a more cohesive set of mares than what we have here on the place. And, and so when we, when we bring our colts to the sale, they're, there, there's something to take in in person there. They're, um, I've worked for a lot of ranches that have had a lot of babies. And I, I, I you know, and I've ridden a lot of them. You know, I've ridden a lot of different pedigrees. And and, and I'm not going to BS you and tell you that the Blue Valentine Hanger courses are the most athletic thing on the face of the earth. Because they're not, you know. They're, they were originally made to go check fences and drag big-ass hunkin' bulls in. And, you know, flush stuff out of the hardest country, you know in the world and and um you know and joe hancock had some speed obviously because he raced but they're sturdy they're tough and and we have we have done a good job of calling for pretty you know we're 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 trying to make them prettier all the time and attractive and better movers and the more i ride them the more i know who the better movers are that can go on and do um, you know, AQHA has the ranching heritage, ranching versatility mm-hmm. challenge now, and we're we are um, a part of that. And so I've have shown our horses in that, and it's kind of funny, Daniel, when you show up at those shows with a Hancock Blue Valentine horse, you stick out like a sore thumb. I mean, <laughs> when you walk in on something, I mean, I I deliberately trim their feathers off, right? So that at least they don't have the feathers <laughs> on their fetlocks. But but you know, you stand out. You're not uh-huh. this tiny little compact metallic cat that flunked out of the cutting, and so you're in the ranch versatility. You know, you're you're on a real using ranch horse, mm-hmm. and yeah. and 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 you're you're they're big, and they've done a day's work, and like when you when you dally on to whatever they have there for you to drag, it's so funny. Cause like my horses know how to drag. And so you dally onto something and those suckers just take off and walk. Mm. And you can tell the horses that have never really drugged something like really had to mm-hmm. drug something hard in their life. And it cracks me up. And I, I think it was Van Hargis that was saying how you show up at these shows and these horses have the little slider plates on mm-hmm. and mine sometimes don't even have front shoes on. You know, and I can tell you from riding out in the pasture, you don't want any sort of sliding plate on those hind feet because oh, yeah. they you're going downhill, boy, and you will flip and go over backwards. And it's not the horse's fault. They're trying. And then you just slip in those suckers. And so when you go and you're competing against that, you go, man, that horse has never been out of the arena in his life with those sliders on. And so it's it's a different deal. But I, I got a little off base there. But um. But we're trying to get them into the arena. We're, um, they're they're being really successful in the mounted shooting venue, and I'm of course I'm using them in the ranch riding and the ranch trail classes, in the ranch versatility competitions. Trying to get them out there and show that these suckers ride. That was my biggest thing when I came here and I met JD and he showed me his horses. And it used to be that back in the day, he'd have somebody show up here at the ranch and and. Uh, you know, the guy would load his stock trailer full of horses, take him back to New Mexico, and you might get a little bit of feedback of that one worked, that one didn't. And when I got here, I said, we're going to show that they ride. And I started videoing them. I started breaking them, and I got them started and videoed them and said, hey, look, the sucker rides. I will say, too, we'll, of course, have all this in the show notes and the links, but Becky has got a YouTube channel where she's pretty prolific about putting up videos. So you can watch her work with and halter break some of these colts and all this stuff and see some of these horses for yourself and 
Uh, there's there's roans for days. So if you like roans, then they've got plenty of them out there. And <laughs> when is this sale, Becky, in Missouri? Um, it- it's it's always the second Saturday in September, and I think this year that lands September 9th. And okay. then the day before the sale, we have a viewing. You know, we you know we we like visiting with people. I mean, heck, we invite people to the ranch. We get a lot of visitors to the ranch. People that want to come out and take a look at colts and and take a look at the studs in person. And we're happy to show them around. But um, down at the horse sale, they come out the day before, have a good visit, show them the horses. We usually do a little kind of get together pizza and cake or some sort of dessert that night before the sale and then in the morning we do preview and and have our sale and um try to get everybody loaded and out of there and wrapped up by about i don't know three or four o'clock in the afternoon so this podcast should come out august 7th so that'll be in plenty of time for that and i'll do a post and everything for you kind of if y'all have a flyer for the sale or a link to it or something like that yeah as y'all can tell, they have done a lot of work to vet these horses and, and working hard on them. And I, I really like the fact that you can go on YouTube and, and watch her work with them and, and kind of see exactly what she's talking about. And and folks, Becky, if, if you can't tell from everything she said, she's the real deal. She may be 115 pounds, but she's a hand. So uh, I, I would <laughs> I would take everything she says to heart here. So, well, Becky, we've been chatting quite a while. I don't want to take up your whole afternoon. But uh, is there anything that I have forgotten that we need to discuss or anything you want to put in here at the end? Gosh, um, you know, I don't I don't know if there's anything that I I, I forgot to mention or not. You, you do have a, Just, a um, website that we'll also have in there. Do you have any yes. services like video coaching or anything like that that you're doing? Um, I, I would certainly you know, I, I would, I would love to do it, but somebody has to want to do it. People got to want to do it. Um, the last person that texted me over and wanted to do video coaching, I gave them the price and I told them I need to see video of the kid off the pattern, just riding around. And then I never heard from them again. And, you know, I think they were hoping to just for me to point out a few things to fix and, you know, call it good. And it, there's a lot, there's a lot there, you know, there's a lot there that needs to be fixed. And, uh, I think I remember you saying something about your, uh, you had software that you could like draw right on and show. So they had a program called coaches eye that I was using, which was very simple and easy. I think you paid them a fee, 150 bucks a year or something to use it. They, They actually discontinued that last year. And so I've been, yeah, and it was, I mean, you had a little learning curve, but in 20 or 30 minutes, you do two, three videos for somebody and you would have it. It was super simple. Now I'm using Adobe Premiere Pro, which is a full on video suite. I mean, it's literally the stuff they use to edit commercials and movies and stuff like that. So it has all kinds of features in it, but the learning curve for it is massive. It it is, it's not, if I wasn't already familiar with it, from all of the video stuff that I've done, I I would never use it. It's way too complicated and time consuming. And frankly, it takes a lot of computing horsepower to do it as well. So I have not found Mm -hmm. a a substitute for coach's eye in terms of ease of use and all of that. But if I come across one, I'll I'll shoot it your way because that that was a handy program. I really hate that they 
I don't know why they had to discontinue it. I mean, it, like they killed my ability to use it completely, even though I still had subscription left. It wasn't that they just decided to stop updating it. Like they, sure. they nuked it and I thought it was working great. I don't know what, like I said, huh. you can do all that stuff on other programs, but it's much more complicated. So. Yeah. Yeah. That's too bad. Well, hopefully by the time this goes up, I'll have something figured out on my Facebook page. And currently my training page is still up, but any content that I had posted is no longer there. And JD is an editor on that page and he has still has access to it. So he's trying to post to kind of keep up, keep it going. And, and he can answer messages, but I can't, I have zero access to the messages. I have no access to the page. Tried to make a new page, uh, create just a new page, Becky Amio, to just go in and try to ask Facebook for help to reconnect to my old account. And I don't know if it's going to happen or not. I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. Um, I'm holding out hope, but it's the further we get away from the incident happening, I think the, <laughs> yeah. the less a chance I have of recovering it. Well, it it's a shame. I, I uh I hate Facebook and I hate that I have to use it and all of that stuff. But I bet if you were running a pedophile ring page, they would have had you right back in control of that. But uh, you're oh, just yeah. a, a decent person doing business. And so they're not going to help you out too much. But well, and, anyway. and I don't, I don't miss the people bitching on there. I don't miss the people complaining and all that. And, and it's been a wonderful way. Like, I, I don't think I was ever addicted to it to begin with, but I do appreciate not having the distraction anymore. Cause I don't open it up in between every horse I work now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, uh, but I, I did enjoy making people happy because I, I, I have my cats and dogs do really silly stuff all the time. And I do post daily something that they're up to. And it, it, I have people come and up to me out of nowhere at a barrel race or a rodeo and say, Oh my God, that thing that your cat did the other day. And they just, they, they love it. They, they want to see what the cat's up to. I've got a cat that'll load up in a vehicle or load up on the four wheeler, just like the dogs do. Mm -hmm. And he'll ride, he'll ride with you. And, and, um, you know, like I said, the dog that retrieved the skunk, you know, stuff like that, you know, just funny stuff like that, that entertain the hell out of people. And it's a good distraction from everyday life. You know, I don't, I don't even know what's going on in the world right now. Cause I haven't been on Facebook and I've got it and I don't watch TV. So I know, I know one of your questions and usually in the beginning when you're doing your icebreaker questionnaire is what do you do to relax? And I was going to say, man, I eat and I take a shower and I go to bed. That's what I do to relax. <laughs> yeah. Like, we don't watch TV here. Plenty of uh, <laughs> farmers and ranchers that don't understand that question. Relax. What do you mean by relax? Free time. Huh? I'm unfamiliar. Yeah. What does that mean? Uh, yeah. Well, there, do you do Instagram at all? Yeah, I've been trying to be active on that since this all happened. So I've been, I've been posting on that, but I, I, I'm not great at answering the answering the messages just yet. Like I'm still having to remind myself, hey, go in there and check your messages, you know, because you're so programmed to check Messenger on Facebook. You know, you have to reprogram your brain. Well, there, there's a uh, a guy I think you would enjoy totally off off the topic, but. Um... I'm I'm looking for him right now and I, I, he's not popping up but it's he hunts invasive species animals in Florida so he's hunting pythons and iguanas and oh, stuff really? like that and okay. he's got a drathar are you familiar with those 
Yes. It's, it's like the wired yes. hair, German short hair yep. pointer. Yep. Yep. They, That's what JD wants. Yeah. Yeah. They're yeah. ferocious. Like the, the German short haired pointer is a good family dog. These things look the same, but they kill cats. And I mean, they're, they are, yeah, they're fighters. And so he, he's, you know, this dog is launching out of the boat to get iguanas and stuff. And I, I really enjoy his, his, uh, stuff. Okay. He, so, so speaking of hunting, I got to ask you this because I love, what is it? Is it Alligator Hunter? What's that show? Oh, Troy Landry. Swamp, swamp People. Swamp People. That. Yes. That's right. Yes. Is it, if, if I could, I would love to go down there and just ride around in the boats with them. I don't have to shoot anything. I just want to just be a little mouse in the corner, fly on the wall and watch it all go down. <laughs> so, so that's all very real. Alligator season is the month of September which uh, if you watch the show also corresponds with the highest incidences of hurricanes that we have here. Uh, In fact, Gator Wrangler, Christy, who was on there years ago, she's, she's kind of a friend, not a, not a real close friend, but she did an expo with us here and her, her, I knew her husband and, and all. And so, so that stuff's real. The way they hunt them is real. I think they, they may beef up the drama and maybe make the accents a little thicker here and there than, than the reality. <laughs> but um, most people in Louisiana don't have that that thick of an accent. Sometimes when you go to those small towns out in the the swamp, they they do. But but for the most part, yeah, yeah, not not so much. Oh um, God, JD can do Troy Landry so good. Boy, that's uh, a big alligator. <laughs> Yeah, he's 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 pretty thick. There's you. I know a lot of people down yeah. here. You, you would. I'd have to go looking for somebody that 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 sounded uh, like him. Most most don't. But oh, uh, God. at any rate, yeah. That's uh, where I'm at. Is just twenty or thirty miles from the Gulf of Mexico, so I'm surrounded by oh rice really and crawfish ponds and and if you go probably 15 miles south of here you start getting into the brackish water the intercoastal canal so there you can catch crabs and there are alligators just all over the place out there there's really too many of them there the I, that way. blows my mind that just blows my mind that there's that many like on one show i watched he had like 500 tags that's insane there there's like there's a place where most of that land in the marsh is private land uh, so there are a few public areas. Probably the best known is what we call Rockefeller Wildlife Refuge, which is a sanctuary. There's no duck hunting or anything down there. But that mm-hmm. place, you can go fishing, blue crab, you can catch shrimp, all sorts of stuff out there. And it's a real popular place. It is, it is. if you're out there for half a day in a boat, it, it would be nothing to count 100 alligators in that day i mean there's there's too many of them. most of them are small they're four and five feet like like it takes i mean it takes something like 10 years for them to get to eight feet long yeah yeah but even a four or five footer would still be a danger to a dog or a small child so right yeah if you do go crabbing down there you really if you got a three-year-old kid you you really had better be right on top of them near the water's edge because because something could happen yeah holy Um, cow so but yeah there's there's tons of alligators around here. There's no, no question, but they're not, we don't think too much of them. I mean, it, it's like, like y'all may see a bear. And for me, that would be a highlight of my life. And to y'all, that's just a Tuesday. So it's kind yeah. of the same, <laughs> the same deal around here. <laughs> <you know? laughs> 
Well, that's cool. I want to come visit. I, I want to come see that. Absolutely. We'll take you crabbing or something. I want to come shoot some pheasants. Yeah. So we'll oh, swap yeah. out. <laughs> yep. Uh -huh. Yep. It's fun. Um, I don't shoot myself. I just enjoy guiding with my dog and, mm -hmm. and have a good time doing that. And uh, I, I really enjoy the guys that come out. And most of the time it's retired old men that, that uh, come out and they're just a lot of fun. And they've been coming to the ranch for 20 years and they've known JD for forever. And, yeah. and, uh, it's it's just a good good fun weekend. It's a good distraction from the horses for the weekend. The very first time that they came out, I thought I was just going to work horses that day. JD wanted me to come up and meet them all, and I get up there and they strap me with a uh, one of those vests to carry <laughs> the birds, and they just start dragging me along, and they had me carrying birds and packing birds for them. So, so yeah, it's it's a good area for that, and uh, you know, and get some good home raised beef, and you know that was. You know, that's something else I didn't even talk about is, is like, is, is like my diet. You know, I have to, you know, at this stage, I really have to be careful with what I eat and feeling good. And, um, you know, we eat, a, we don't eat very much processed stuff around here. And we're very fortunate that we're going to eat what we raise. And I've got 34 different food allergies. And so one of my favorite podcasters is Rich Roll and he's a vegan athlete and um, I don't have anything against vegans. It, it, you know, whatever works for you works for you, right? Um, and I thought, well, you know, when you start to listen to how great their life is, you know, doing, you know, not eating meat, you know, first of all, that's, you know, ranch blasphemy, um, you know, not eating meat. But um, a lot of the a lot of the foods on my allergy list are fruits and vegetables. And I'm allergic to every sort of grain. And so I really do the best if I just eat beef if I just eat mm -hmm. beef and chicken and like sometimes all we have is steak or sometimes all we have is ground hamburger or he'll make a hamburgers and I just eat the hamburger or he'll ground up some hamburger and I put a little salt on it and I eat that. And, and I feel really, really good. You know, no body aches, no joint problems. No, you know, not waking up and having to take painkillers to get going. And that's something that I've had to adjust to, you know, with age and because when JD met me, I was living on coffee and Snickers. I'm 35 years old and I'm eating coffee and Snickers. And I had this little, little, I had this little wrapper of Snickers in my refrigerator and he thought it was trash. And it was like the last bite of a Snickers bar. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, what the hell is this? And I'm, and I go, and I'm like, don't throw that away. And, and he couldn't believe it. And so we overhauled my diet pretty good. But um, and another thing I didn't bring up. And, and I talk about this on my YouTube channel as I have a, a, a series called make good choices Monday. And I talk about, I tell, tell you guys stories of all the times that I've done really something really stupid and got hurt, you know? So I talk about all the injuries that I've had and if anything, if, if anything, it's entertaining, but also if somebody can learn from my experience or from what I did, you know, maybe that would help them along the way because I think we don't realize, you know, seriously how dangerous these animals are and how easily they could kill us. So, <laughs> yeah, a lot of people don't, That that's, um, that's for sure. I, I'm curious just so, so I've got you here. I haven't done a ton of safety videos. One of the videos that I did do was on, uh, how to mount your horse correctly. And that one has been a pretty mm -hmm. good hit on my channel. And one of the things mm -hmm. I have always been mystified by is the people that mount at the shoulder. 
and they kind of turn the stirrup toward them and hop around. Yes. And then get yeah, on. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've like my experience with horses tells me that standing up there at that shoulder is one of the worst places I can be because if that horse goes to move, he's gonna knock you right down. How how do you feel about that? Because yeah. I think that's kind of a okay a staple in your territory up there. So 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 they do it here. I mean, you go around and seventy five percent of the people that are mounting they mount like that. And um, I I was training for this ranch out that's out in Vale, South Dakota, and um, I've owned several of their horses and I've rode their stud for them, and and I was riding some mares for them, and I I had finished up with the one mare, and they came out to get them, and and they're they're an older couple, you know they've they're they've they've got kids that are older than me, and the husband will still ride, well actually both of them will still ride, and the husband came and he went to ride this filly, and he went to mount her just like that, just like what you said. And, uh, I go, let me ask you why you do that. And he goes, well, he goes, well, I'm just, we've just done it for so many years because a lot of times when we were mounting up to ride was trying to kick us as we were getting on it. And so if we mounted from the shoulder, it couldn't, couldn't cow kick us when we were getting up on it. And I go, if we're worried about this horse kicking us when we're getting up on it, we're not getting on it. Mm -hmm. We're just, we're not getting on it yet. And, and so I work really, really hard to teach them to stand still. I mean, for obviously for everything, but for mounting and I use lick tubs, I use mounting blocks. I use the fence. I use all the things because you never know. Cause I have had those injuries where I've had a broken foot or a sprained ankle or something broken and I had to keep riding and I needed to get up that, get up on that horse and I couldn't do it from the ground. And so they've got to let me mount them from that spot where, and I like to mount where I'm facing the same direction as they are. So in the event that they do take off, I could, I can either slide out and they keep going or I can keep swing my leg up and then come bring them to a stop. And that's just riding cold. But by the time they go home, they better stand completely still because inevitably the person that comes and picks them up, they don't hold on to the reins. They've got to adjust their pants. They've got to, you know, do the little stretch. They can't hike their leg up high enough. They got a bad knee or whatever. So that horse better be able to handle everything. But from a, if I'm going to mount them in the show ring after I've dismounted in a ranch versatility class, I'm standing right next to that stirrup. I'm facing the same direction the horse is. I put my left foot in the stirrup, reach up and hold my reins with my left hand. And then I'll, I'll sometimes grab the palm, like the pommel or the cantle as I swing my leg over. I have had two different customers. This has, this has been a long time ago, but two different people that came to do their first test ride on their 30 day colt that put their foot in the stirrup, stepped up there and sat down right behind the saddle on top of the horse's butt. And it didn't end well for either one of them, but uh -oh. there's just, yeah, you, you can't imagine all the things people might do mountain horse <laughs> that it's hard to prepare them for. So, I mean, I, I waller around up there a bunch and all that stuff, but I'm not sitting on their butt behind the saddle, not on a 30 day cold, you know? So the world, it, it, it shows you lots of things from time to time. <laughs> Well, y'all check Becky out on YouTube and we'll of course have links to her website and all of that stuff. And I, I think this sale in September, if you're anywhere near Missouri, I think uh, you'd be 
very well advised to head over there and and check out their horses and and who knows maybe let your your child do their first auctioneer and bid and all of that stuff and help out a good cause so becky i sure appreciate you coming on we'll definitely stay in touch throughout and uh, it is it's truly been a pleasure to talk with you this might be the most training centric podcast i have done yet and i've kind of really been wanted to do one like this so so thank you for being a cool. part of that uh it's it's truly been a pleasure to talk cool deal yep that was a lot of fun <laughs> we'll see you next week for another episode of adult onset horsemanship i've been your host daniel dolphin